0: The show with a sneeze, bitches. Starting the show with a sneeze. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the show. Um, I have a phenomenal one for you today. So, yes, the answer is yes, there will be another segment involving Joe Rogan. The good news is we're down to one. Previously there were like three a day. <laughs> now, as things are cooling off at least somewhat, we're down to one Joe Rogan story. That is something to celebrate. I, just like you, would like to shut up about them. Um, I will talk about the Canadian trucker blockade. There's a lot to say about that. Very complex story that requires um, a lot of nuance in talking about it. Nuance, I think, is lacking in many places. Um, We have a bombshell story about CIA spying. Now, you might hear that and go, well, duh. Like, what would you expect? But the fact of the matter is, it's always been the NSA that has been known as the grand spymaster on all Americans. But it looks like uh, there's a phenomenal twist and update to that because who knows, maybe every government agency is spying on you. I think in due time we might find that out indeed. Uh, we also have Biden's shameless virtue signal about people in Afghanistan. Uh, you're not going to want to miss that story. Trump clogging the White House toilet. That sounds like it shouldn't be a story because it sounds like I'm talking about our former president taking colossal shits. But that ain't the meat of the story, dog. That ain't the meat, although I'm sure he also clogged the toilet that way too. Um, (laughs) uh, And then also later on in the show, Cori Bush doubles down on the defund the police slogan. AOC forces a vote on the stock ban, stock trading ban for Congress. And uh, I will get into the topic of America bad leftism. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it something in between? Why or why not? So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And unfortunately, we will do that with yet another Joe Rogan story. I know at this point, many of you are not going to believe me when I say this, but I mean it from the bottom of my heart when I say, I don't want to do another Joe Rogan story. I'm forced to talk about Joe Rogan yet again. Uh, The good news is we're down from like three Joe Rogan stories a day to one. So we're moving in the right direction. I want to shut up about it. I'm sure Joe Rogan wants everybody to shut up about it. I'm sure you want me to shut up about it. Hopefully we can do that soon. I couldn't get through the day without showing you what is probably one of the dumbest headlines I've ever seen. And also the meat of the article is equally as stupid. Let me go ahead and throw this up there for you. This is in CNN. Joe Rogan's use of the N-word is another January 6th moment. Joe Rogan's use of the N-word is another January 6th moment. This is by uh, John Blake. I love how they call this analysis. This is analysis. I think you need to come up with a different word, because analysis is uh, too highbrow, and this barely clears the bar for an opinion article, dog. So, look, I'm not going to go through it uh, with a fine-tooth comb, but you go ahead and read the article. It is one of the dumbest things I've ever read in my life. Um, There's a comparison in there to the Rwandan genocide. And CNN got so much crap for it on social media that they went back and changed the title. Like, literally 100% of the responses were like, I can't believe you actually wrote this. What standards do you have? There were even people who said, I don't even like Joe Rogan. I don't like Joe Rogan. I don't listen to Joe Rogan. But to compare this to January 6th, it was an attempted insurrection at the Capitol. It was like best case scenario, it was a riot. Worst case scenario, they were literally trying to do a coup. And that's comparable to Joe Rogan saying the N-word Now, whatever you think about Joe Rogan saying the N-word, and my guess is everybody thinks, yeah, that's probably not the best look, dog. But whatever you think about it, the fact of the matter is he was talking about the word, not using the word as a slur. So it would be like quotes where the word was in it. That's what we like to call in context. Now, again, you don't have to like that, but you cannot pretend that saying the word in context is equal to using it as a slur in a purposely derogatory context. Now, unfortunately, there's like a war on nuance in today's day and age, so people like to pretend like those two things are the same thing, but we know that's not true. We know that's not true, and anybody who's willing to be minimally objective about this, regardless of what you think of Joe Rogan, you know that that's the case. So anyway, I digress from that point. The reason I'm showing you this headline, and I'm not going to give you brain worms by going through the article. Again, if you want to read it, you can go ahead and read the whole thing on your own. The reason why I'm showing you this is to further expose what they're attempting to do in regards to Joe Rogan, which is dismiss him out of hand, make him toxic, make all of his uh, listeners toxic, and basically compare him to Rush Limbaugh. They're trying to say, like, this is the new Rush Limbaugh. It's also, I think, a concerted effort where previously in the Trump years, the media 100% of the time talked about Trump. Because, you know, he was front and center. He's president of the United States. It's even legitimate to talk about him that much. I think the way in which they did it wasn't the best, but they did it. And that's what covered, that's what filled all their airtime. Now, I mean, Rush Limbaugh is dead. There is no, um, you know, Donald Trump presidency. So now they switch to, like, 50% of the time they'll cover Trump because he probably wants to run again. And he's still giving speeches and whatnot and making an ass of himself. So, like, half the time they cover Trump. But there's still, like, somewhat of a Trump void. So they're filling that with the new uh, boogeyman, which is Joe Rogan. So now there's a lot I could say about Joe Rogan and his politics and the, the numerous mashups out there of either his worst moments or his bad jokes or whatever. But what I want to go ahead and do here is show you Breaking Points ran this on their channel uh, last week. And this was made by Orf on twitter uh i'm gonna mispronounce your name matt i'm sorry i always mess it up but matt i think it's Orphelia. he uh put together a compilation of the moments of joe rogan that the media will never show you and again they're never going to show you this on purpose because they're trying to drive a narrative home but here's the side of joe rogan that if you don't watch him and you're only familiar with how the media describes him, you wouldn't know that this is part of who he is as well. Take a look.
1: Really believe. If yeah. Michelle Obama runs, she might win. She
0: She's, She's good. good. She's great.
1: She's right. the wife of the best president that we've had right. in our lifetime. I've never voted right wing in my life. I consider universal basic income a really good idea. I want free college education. Yeah. Hello, Bernie. How are you, Joe? Wonderful. Pleasure <laughs> to meet you. Pleasure nice to meet you. I like healthy, and I like Bernie. That's it. Oh, yeah? Everybody else can eat shit. I okay, think you're a fucking progressive. Yeah. I think I'll probably vote for Bernie. I think he's looking out for the interests of the working people, and I think he wants people to have a better life life and do better. And I'm all for that. And if that means I have to pay more entirely people think, Oh, you're a socialist I've heard people say that, Oh, you're a fucking socialist bro like first of all he's not even a socialist. He, he's a democratic socialist. It's a different thing. I would like to spend more in taxes if they could fix the inner city communities and, and take these poor neighborhoods. And we a lot. <laughs> spend more, you fucking Republican. 87% of scientists said that human activity is driving global warming. I'm very pro-choice, I'm very women's rights, civil rights, gay rights, trans rights. I'm even universal health care. Obviously, this um, protected status is driving me crazy. This is the thing that Trump's doing with children that were born in other countries and then brought over here as children, and then they're talking about supporting them. That drives me fucking crazy. The hard right version of that is despicable. There's some of these people that I see online, why didn't they apply for citizenship? Oh, who knows, maybe because they're fucking 13. I don't give a fuck if they broke the law. You don't take parents and kids and separate them. You just fucking don't. You know Alonzo? Uh, funny comedian. He said, he goes, not all Donald Trump supporters are racists, but all racists are Donald Trump supporters.
2: That that, that that, he definitely awakened that Uh, But
1: the January 6th thing is important. See, it is important, but is is it the, six months later, is it should be the ruling... Number I, one think, conversation I think it's really important, and one of the reasons why I think it's important, because it highlights the reasons why a guy like Donald Trump is so fucking dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's because a guy can incite a bunch of morons to do something really fucking stupid. But as far as trans people, some trans people listening to this, i got nothing but love for you. But for everybody, and in fact, any Izzard is one of my all-time favorite guests. Oh, I love Izzard. The right-wing thing, it's just an easy way to dismiss me, because I'm not right-wing. I can't recommend your book, Race Matters, enough.
0: Now, I want to be clear about something. I'm not showing you this compilation to turn around and say, this represents all of Joe Rogan. This is exactly who he is, and everything else you see that portrays him negatively is not what he is. That is not the case I'm making, because unlike a lot of the people in mainstream media, I'm intellectually honest. So what I'll say about Joe is the same thing I hope you'd say about me and uh, I'd say about you, and anybody else in the national dialogue, which is, we are all of our moments. You are what you do. So those negative moments count, and those positive moments count. All of it counts. You don't get to spin everything to your liking based on your own personal feelings about somebody and say, only the good counts here, and only the bad counts here, because that's stupid. That's stupid. So my point to you is, all of the information is relevant, all of it's relevant, and what you're getting in mainstream media is this picture painted of him of like, look, he's just a, a right wing hack, and he's just a bad person, and he's a bigot, and he's a racist, and he's a sexist, and he's you know fill in the blank with whatever negative word you can think of, and I don't think that is fair. It's not fair. So he also said this stuff too. So. Are there criticisms of him? Absolutely. Joe would openly say, yeah, you should have criticisms of me. And the fact of the matter is, the criticism that I land on is more, look, usually whatever guest he has on, he's willing to go with the flow and be so open-minded that it's almost open-minded to a fault. And so if he's sitting, like I've listened to some of his podcasts with Ben Shapiro – and I'd be lying to you guys if I said I wasn't cringing through it because there's so many things that Ben Shapiro says that are factually false that he asserts as if it's accurate. And Joe's willing to go along with the flow because that's what he does with his guests. Now, that's just the nature of his podcast and what he does. Would I like it if he you know, pushed Ben more aggressively or whatever? Of course I would. But he doesn't do it. But when he's sitting with Ben Shapiro, he'll go with the flow of him. When he's sitting with me or Bernie Sanders, he'll go with the flow of us. And so oftentimes what you get is a contradictory picture. Sometimes there's a contradictory picture. So that is a criticism, but it's also the case that this is how most people act in their daily lives. And this is one of the reasons why his show got wildly popular to begin with, is that not everybody has like a super developed political philosophy like you do or I do, and that's the whole point of this show is to give you the news and information, but also give you my political stance on things. Not everybody has that well-fleshed out uh, opinions on like all of these various issues. And so... This is how, you know, uh, your Uncle Bob acts, and this is how your your best friend Jane or Steve acts. And that doesn't make them a bad person. I think the thing that's so frustrating in regards to the Rogan controversy is that, like, the right always tries to claim him. Like, oh, he's one of us, he's one of us, he's one of us, we're with him. And they're just trying to, like, latch on to his popularity and act like, if you like him, you like us. And tactically and strategically, that's an intelligent move. And, but what the left does is try to just excise him, Like they want to amputate whatever influence he may have on the left and say, we don't want you with us. You're the number one podcaster in the world. You're phenomenally popular. But we're going to say only your negative moments count, none of your good moments count. And so we're not even going to try to, like, you know, battle for the soul of Joe Rogan, if you will, and try to get him even more on our side. To the point where maybe he isn't contradictory in some of his podcasts, and he doesn't go with the flow as much with the right-wing guests. And I just view that as blockheaded. Like this is obviously a guy who's open to criticism, as evidenced by the fact that one of his strongest beliefs was on this myocarditis thing in regards to the COVID vaccine. He sat, sat across from Josh Zepps, and Josh Zepps was like, "You're wrong about that. You have a higher instance of myocarditis from COVID itself." And then as soon as it was demonstrated to him, look, that's the case, he held on for a minute, but then after the podcast, he was like, look, I was wrong, and this guy made me look dumb. Th- that's a guy who's obviously open, it, opening, open excuse me, to changing his mind. I told you guys the story. He said the thing about paid paternity leave. Crystal and I did a segment explaining exactly why that's incorrect. Now, we didn't cancel him in the process. We didn't viciously go after him. I wasn't trying to slit his throat and drink the blood that comes out, but we effectively corrected him and said, look, here's why we think this is wrong. And then Joe afterwards was like, you know what, you made a good case. I, I, I agree with you. You know, this wasn't something that I had well thought out. And so in other words, if you actually engage in trying to convince people who are convincible, and Joe Rogan is convincible, well, then you make the tent bigger, you make the left more appealing, and you have a phenomenally powerful voice on your side of the argument to recruit even further. But there is no attempt to do that at all. And, in fact, the attempt is the opposite. Let's, like, silo off the left as much as possible, cast aspersion on everybody just for character flaws or some of the things that they said. And that's not the political project that I want to be involved in. I've said this before. The left is supposed to be about purity of policy, not purity of character. We're supposed to be the side that says, I don't care if you're somebody who committed a murder. If you genuinely were rehabilitated, then guess what? We're going to welcome you back with open arms because, uh, you know, you're rehabilitated. And so how is it that we can have people who simultaneously understand that rehabilitation for criminal justice makes sense, but rehabilitation for saying naughty things doesn't make sense at all? That's such a massive contradiction. It's such a massive contradiction. And again, the question I would have for mainstream media and all the sincere Rogan critics, because there are a lot of sincere Rogan critics out there, is what exactly do you want to happen? And, you know, I think the answer is, Not only do they want him on Spotify, ideally, they'd like it if he just wasn't doing his podcast anymore and wasn't, you know, a voice in the landscape anymore. And the fact of the matter is, for all of Joe's flaws, and he has many, he does a significantly better job than mainstream media. You know, look, I could not disagree more with the whole Malone, McCullough, anti-vax stuff. I think it's genuinely harmful. I think it is misinformation. Um, And... I'm glad that breaking points brought on a doctor to to rebut a lot of those points. I'm glad that there are some YouTubers who went through with a fine-tooth comb. But that's the thing the mainstream media should have done. But that's not what they engage in. They engage in the opposite. They go from you're spreading anti-vax stuff, which is bad. We don't like it. Okay, fair enough. To, well, maybe we should pull it all down because of that. What? To, now, oh, you're a racist. What? (laughs) So, effectively, what they want is just be gone. We want you all... Uh, off Spotify. Ideally, we'd get you off whatever the next platform is you'd end up on as well. And I don't agree with that sort of censorship. I don't agree with that kind of deplatforming. And um, I would like it if there was more of an effort to spread left ideas and convince a guy who's obviously convincible, as evidenced by the million and one times he's been convinced by left arguments. So that again, that's not to take away all responsibility from Joe. He does have flaws. Like I said, he is often contradictory, but this is how most normal people are in the real world who aren't political junkies. And instead of, like, dealing with that fact, what happens is the left loses its damn mind and says, let's just deplatform and censor and get him out of here and paint him as as only his bad moments. That's just not fair. That just makes no sense. And some of the things he said there were... Nominally left of me, <laughs> you know, like he, the Michelle Obama point. Oh, she'd be great. I, don't, I have no idea what she even believes on the policies. I don't think she'd be great. I'd like to know what she thinks about like Medicare for all and free college and ending the wars before I say let's vote for her. Um, he calls Obama the best president of our lifetimes. I mean, maybe that's true, but that's like being the tallest kid in kindergarten. You know, I, that's just doesn't mean he's good because he's not. He's still done a number of horrendous things as we've gone over in detail on this show, whether it be the illegal drone war or whatever. Um, he says, tax me more. I want free college. I want universal health care. I want, uh, you know, I'm going to vote for Bernie. He's against the, uh, no, uh, he argues against the child separation policy. The I, I think, I don't know if it was included in this, but um, he also, I think at one point, I think with Duncan, Tru- Duncan Trussell sort of made an argument for open borders. So, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that goes uh, too far. I think we need borders just for the sake of organization. Um, in order to, you know, in order, to, if you have a welfare state, you need a border. Because, and I'm a fan of a welfare state, because you can't just have a welfare state and like literally anybody from anywhere around the world, seven billion people could access the welfare state. That just doesn't make sense. It's not feasible. You can't, you can't make it work in terms of the dollars and cents. So there are things he said that's nominally to the left of me. Or way more pro-Democrat than me, so I have criticisms even of this stuff. But at least you get now a more full sense of who the guy is. I'm not saying the negative stuff doesn't matter; it all matters. But that's a position that you should hold too. It all matters. It all matters. We're an amalgamation of everything we do and everything we say, whether we like it or not. And since all of us have said stupid things and done stupid things, it kind of sucks that we're in an amalgamation of all of our moments. But it is what it is. That is literally what we are so i hope this gives you a more balanced picture i know most of the people in my audience uh probably were aware of all the things both good and bad involving uh joe rogan but um there are a lot of people who only know the mainstream media caricature of him and all they thought was they really think like you know people who don't who haven't listened to him walked away from the past couple weeks thinking he is like richard spencer he's like david duke he's just a hardcore racist because, you know, a compilation of him saying the N-word 22 times, anybody's going to think that. Little did they know he's quoting the word in context. Yeah, this rapper said this. This comedian said this. Talking about the word, not not using the word as a slur directed at somebody. So I, it's important for the sake of accuracy to bring this stuff up. Now, having said all that, I hope I don't have to mention Joe Rogan again. But I'm probably going to have to because I'm sure CNN and MSNBC and all the big media outlets are going to keep dropping bangers on us like, you know, Joe Rogan's use of the N-word is like a literal attempted coup of the United States government. Again, I don't want to talk about it. I feel like my hand is being forced here, but now you have a more accurate picture of who the guy is. That's for sure. All right, next. There is a Canadian trucker blockade that's currently happening. It's uh, on, I think, three different portions uh, on the northern border of the U.S., or the border between the U.S. and Canada. I want to show you a quick uh, news segment here, two- or three-minute news uh, segment clip here from PBS. They lay it out in in a fairly objective way, so let me show you what they say, and then I'll come back and break it down and tell you guys my take on it.
3: As we reported, truckers and protesters blocked a key border crossing between the U.S. and Canada for a fifth straight day. A court injunction issued late today ordered an end to that blockade, and President Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also spoke about trying to stop the disruptions. But for now, trucks are blocking three border crossings in Montana, North Dakota, and Michigan. That includes most of a crucial bridge between Detroit and Windsor, Ontario. It's led to shutdowns of auto plants and production cuts in Michigan, West Virginia, Kentucky, Alabama, and Canada. Paul Solomon has a look at the latest. A normal and free-flowing U.S.-Canada trade artery.
2: Want to see Choked to a standstill by protesters, many from the U.S., calling themselves the Freedom Convoy. It began in late January in response to a rule imposed by both countries that truckers be fully vaccinated to cross the border. It's day five of protests at the Ambassador Bridge, the key transit point which connects Windsor, Ontario to Detroit. Truckers have shut down the road.
4: We want freedom, freedom of all mandates, and that's what we're fighting for, we're Canadians, and we want to be free Canadians. Canada is
2: our biggest trading partner, bigger than China, and the Ambassador Bridge is the biggest U.S.-Canada border crossing, a quarter of all trade between the two countries flowing across this one bridge. A key economic problem, auto parts deliveries, manufacturers, Ford, Toyota, GM, forced to scale back production or entirely shut down plants. Michelle Krebs is an analyst with Auto Trader.
3: This is very significant. because for one, it comes at a terrible time. Um, We are already short on new vehicle inventory because of the global computer chip shortage that occurred last year. We had a lot of plants that were shut down, could not produce vehicles. There's very little inventory to buy. So for consumers, it may mean that they'll have to wait longer for the vehicles that they've ordered. For automakers, it's just shut down their production. What
2: began as defiance of a specific COVID trucking rule has now morphed into a larger protest against how Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government has been handling the virus. The first step is to defuse the situation by opening up some good communication and dropping these mandates and setting life back to normal. The jam got so bad that local officials successfully obtained a court order to stop the protest. Its immediate impact is unclear, but it's set to take effect tonight. And today, Prime Minister Trudeau called for a peaceful resolution of the protests. So make no mistake, the border cannot and will not remain closed. The Biden administration has also asked Canada to intervene using federal powers. By contrast, the hard right in the U.S. has cheered the movement. Words of support coming from the likes of Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and Texas Senator Ted Cruz. I think the
4: Canadian truckers are standing up for freedom. I think it is powerful to watch.
0: So there's a number of different angles to this story, and it's important, it's important to, uh, you know, explain them, explain all the different angles with all the detail they require. So another portion of the story that they didn't mention in this PBS uh, clip is GoFundMe froze about $10 million in funds that was given to this protest, to this blockade. And uh, their nominal reason is that there are some uh, extremist elements that are associated with it. I don't care even if there are extremist elements associated with it. For GoFundMe to freeze that money, which was supposed to go to them, I don't like that at all. I think that sets a terrible precedent. So GoFundMe could just decide for political reasons, we don't like that group or we don't like that group, and just freeze the funds. And banks involved have done the same thing. There was a story that came out yesterday about TD Bank freezing some funds that were supposed to go to the truckers. So regardless of what you think of the politics in this particular instance, in this particular protest or blockade, um, this precedent is terrible. All these platforms are supposed to be just mediums. But instead, now they're getting involved in – uh, determining what they personally find acceptable and not acceptable. And that, is, that can absolutely be flipped uh, against Marxists, for example. Socialists, I mean, it easily can be used like that. So everybody should be against the precedent of that sex. So on the GoFundMe portion, I don't even think it's a hard question. I don't think, even if they, there are extremist groups involved or extremist leaders or whatever, that's not the job of GoFundMe or any platform like that to determine uh, what they like and don't like, what they accept and don't accept. It's, there should be a hard policy for all of the different, you know, funding sites that we don't get involved in the specifics of it, man. Now, if you say, well, it's crowdfunding to commit a murder, that's a different story. But nobody's crowdfunding to commit a murder here. So, and don't pretend like they are. So, on the GoFundMe portion, I think the answer is uh, easy. Now, beyond that, the truckers are asking specifically to get rid of the vaccine mandate. We're going to come back to that point in a second, and I'm going to tell you what my take on that is. But it's also important to bring up, listen, 90% of the truckers, 90% are already vaccinated. 90%. And in fact, the biggest union, the biggest trucker union representing Canada, the Teamsters, released a statement and said, we oppose these truckers. We oppose this blockade. They represent a a minority of working people as evidenced by the fact that 90% are already vaccinated. And, you know, David Dole did this thing where he covered this protest and he had some interviews directly with other truckers and there are plenty of truckers, working class people who are like, just get vaccinated, like just get vaccinated. So that's another important fact that a lot of people are glossing over that like, Oh, this represents a minority position. And a lot of the people who were involved in setting this up are, simply on the right. Right. And that's evidenced by the fact that, like you saw, Ted Cruz, Ron DeSantis, some other Republican politicians in the U.S. are are the ones who are cheering this on. Now, having said that, what do I think of uh, what their demand is? Listen, if 90 percent are already vaccinated, 90 percent, I don't know why they don't just say, you know what, it's no longer a hard vaccine mandate. We're gonna institute a or test policy. That's it. So you say, all right, you don't wanna get vaccinated. You don't have to get vaccinated, but you have to take a test. And a rapid test is super easy. It's super quick. Anybody who acts like that's some sort of, you know, incredible crackdown on freedom and liberty, I think you're being absurd. That's just a basic safety regulation in the middle of a deadly pandemic. But if 90% of the truckers are already vaccinated, and you guys know my stance on hard mandates in general. I don't support them. I think you have to balance both individual rights with the well-being and the health and safety of the collective and the community. You have to balance those things. That, and if you're on the left, you're supposed to value both of those things tremendously. And thankfully, we have an answer. We have an answer. You don't do a hard mandate. You don't do wild, wild, west, you know, no rules at all. You do either get vaccinated. If you don't want to get vaccinated, fine. Here, take, take a rapid test, and, and we'll see, you know, if you have it. So I don't know why you wouldn't just do that. Instead, they're going in the other direction, and Trudeau just announced, you know, invoking emergency powers that have never been invoked before, and they're cracking down in a police state sort of way. I don't agree with that. I think it goes way too far. 90% are already vaccinated. Just do a vaccinator test policy and call it a day. That's it. Just do a vaccinator test policy and call it a day. If you don't want the vaccine, you don't have to get the vaccine, just take a quick test, and you're fine. And understand, you know, if this was the U.S., I'd be inclined to say, whatever, you know, you don't. You don't have to do anything if 90% of them are already vaccinated. But since it's Canada, and in Canada, generally, they're more uh, pro-COVID regulation than in the U.S., um, I think that this is the compromise that effectively would work and generally people would accept. Now, having said all that, what's the main thing I'm feeling in regard to the story? It's very simple. I'm jealous. I'm jealous because what's very clear, Edward Snowden tweeted about this the other day, I think he's 100% right, is... Now you have the ruling class and the elites are concerned that this sort of tactic, this sort of protest has – it really can work. And you know what? I think that's wonderful because now you know workers do have power blockading a bridge in order to demand you know, certain things. If that ends up working and sends the message that you guys can do this in the future, I think that's wonderful and the reason why I'm jealous is all they're asking for is like an end to uh, the vaccine mandate. Whereas I look at it and I go, it's amazing the left hasn't gotten our shit together enough to do a similar kind of thing and demand in the U.S., universal health care, right to a union, higher wages, paid vacation time. Now, granted, look, these, this is a Canadian thing, and so they already have universal health care, so they wouldn't protest for universal health care, but as somebody on the left i'm just genuinely jealous that we didn't think of this tactic first and we haven't employed this tactic because this tactic has a very high ceiling you can just shut down trade between the two countries by blockading some bridges and making demands well that's something i love to see and i'd love to see us truckers do it and i'd love to see them do it for universal health care right to a union higher wages paid vacation time Uh, You know, and you could just have a list of demands that all poll overwhelmingly popular that the working class is begging for. And then we do this tactic. And I think the fact of the matter is the reason why I think the right has gotten their shit together more to do something like this, it's very simple. Some of the people involved in organizing it, they're ex-military and ex-police officers. And so keep it real. When you have, you know, ex-military, ex-police officers – they just have more of a belief in order, leadership, discipline, hierarchy. They don't think all hierarchies are inherently evil. So if you believe in order, discipline, leadership, and hierarchy, then when you come up with the plan and you execute the plan, everybody's gonna abide by the plan. Everybody's gonna follow through with the plan. And this is something keep it real, that we never see on the left, ever. In fact, the second somebody tried to assert themselves as a leader, the second that they tried to implement some sort of order or discipline or hierarchy, the people at the bottom would look at the people at the top who are setting the rules, and they pull up some blog post they made in 1997 and call them a bigot and then fire them from that position, and then there would never be the protest. The protest wouldn't even come to fruition because the left does not – engage in these same tactics or believe in these same virtues. But the fact of the matter is if you ever wanna get anything done ever, especially in regards to a protest, you have to believe in some semblance of order and leadership and discipline and hierarchy to, to meet your goals and get to that desired end result. But since the left believes so much in democracy and so much in egalitarianism, it's like they think all hierarchy is by definition bad and wrong and a problem and evil. And, you know, discipline and leadership is is inherently questionable, even if it's good leadership, even if it's towards the right ends and towards the right goal. And so, really, the main thing I feel as I watch, you know, these protests unfold is jealousy, is jealousy. Now, there was uh, some misinformation that was spreading. I think it was the Department of Homeland Security that originally put this out. They said, like, oh, these uh, trucker-style protests are now coming to the U.S. and they're going to happen at the Super Bowl. And that didn't happen. In fact, the entire time, all chatter of that was aspirational. It was not, there were no plans that were in effect that were ready to be unveiled at the Super Bowl. And so, you know, it was misinformation that was out there. A lot of people ran with it thinking it was true. It's not true, Um, you know. Maybe at some point in the future, it will come to the US. But again, I tend to doubt it just because for the same reason. this is successful and this is orderly because you have ex-police officers and ex-military running it and they're running a tight ship. In order to ever achieve anything, you have to run a tight ship and the left does not run a tight ship by any stretch of the imagination. So anyway, that's my breakdown of the story. You got to remember, 90% of the truckers are vaccinated. The majority of the truckers are not with uh, these protests. The Teamsters, the biggest trucker union, uh, opposes this, this movement. It is true that it's more right-leaning. A lot of the leaders are more right-leaning. Having said all that, I definitely would have frozen the funds. I think that goes way too far and sets uh, a terrible precedent. And since so many of them are vaccinated, I will say at the end of the day, just give them, say, yeah, okay, you can take a test if you want to take a test. That's the end of it. And I think that's fine. I don't think that's unreasonable. In fact, that's the, you guys know that's the policy I prefer across the board. I I was never in favor of hard mandates. I don't agree with hard mandates. I think that goes too far. And so offer them vaccinator or test to get out of this. But uh, the bottom line is I like the tactic. I want to see more of the tactic, but I want to see the left use the tactic. And I want to see the left use it for universal health care and right to a union and higher wages and paid vacation time. And um, as I said, unfortunately, I have doubts as to whether or not the left will ever get their shit together enough to do it. Because um, usually the left uh, likes to fight itself and implode in on itself. And never even reached the point where we have leadership, hierarchy, order, discipline in service of a a broader goal. You know, that's why when you look at the civil rights movement, yes, there was absolutely there was bottom up um, pressure and it was organic and it was egalitarian to a degree. But also there were figureheads and there were leaders and there was an ethic, there was order and there was discipline among the people. It takes discipline. To say look if the if the um if bull connor's dogs are being sicked on you and you're uh getting hit by a fire hose don't get violent don't get violent we believe in in peace as a matter of principle we're pacifists that takes a lot of order and a lot of discipline that is not something that the left has today i wish we did and again i wish we would copy this tactic because honestly regardless of what you think of this specific protest the tactic is brilliant Okay. So we have some big news that dropped over the weekend. Let me go ahead and throw this tweet up there so you can see it from Edward Snowden. Let's go to the ACLU one first. Breaking, newly classified documents reveal that the CIA has been secretly conducting mass surveillance programs that capture Americans' private information. Edward Snowden responded to that and said, huge, CIA bulk surveillance has been carried out entirely outside the statutory framework and without any judicial, congressional, or even executive branch oversight. The nature and full extent was withheld even from the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. So you had two senators, Wyden was one of them, I'm blanking on the other one, who about a year ago um, sent a letter in regards to this asking for more information. That letter has now leaked, it's come out, it's been declassified. And so all that we know as of this moment is that the CIA is doing bulk surveillance, mass surveillance on all Americans with zero oversight. That's all we know. We don't know the specifics of the program. We don't know the details of it. We don't know how far reaching it is. We don't know the nature of the information that they've uh, collected. Is it metadata where it's just like, metadata is like, so if you make a phone call, it'll say you made a phone call to this number and this is how long. The, the call was. It was two minutes and thirteen seconds or whatever. That's a lot of what the NSA was able to collect. Um, with the CIA, are they getting the contents of a phone call? Are they getting the contents of your text messages? Um, how deep is the rock? How far does it go? Now my speculation, and I want to be upfront and clear, this is just speculation at this point. There's no evidence to back this up. But I find it hard To imagine that big tech is not directly involved in this I find it hard to imagine you know Google and Apple and Facebook and all sorts of big powerful companies aren't directly involved in this because there of course there's a history of these companies basically working with the government working with the intelligence agencies in the deep state and um, you want to in the government's good graces you know maybe that's why they've been able to get away so long without having any antitrust invoked against them And if you stay in the government's good graces, you know, they reward you for it. So it's very possible that as we willingly put our information all over the Internet that this is something that is going directly to the authorities. And it's not just the NSA. Now, we know it's also the CIA. Of course, the FBI has been involved in this stuff for a long time. I mean, remember, it was the FBI who tried to get Martin Luther King to kill himself. The FBI spied on Malcolm X. They spied on Martin Luther King. They sent a letter to MLK saying, look, we know you're cheating on your wife and you're a philanderer. You should probably kill yourself. This is what these uh, agencies do. We know that um, Ken Klippenstein, over at The Intercept, released a story. There were some military training manuals that referred to socialists alongside terrorists, like, you know, like, this is the enemy. I think they've since changed that because of the outcry and, and the backlash, but this is what's going on. They also you know, have a lot of manpower dedicated to black identity extremists. You know, these are groups that I'm sure BLM is getting spied on. By the way, there's a whole other scandal with BLM going on right now, like something like 60 of the $90 million they raise is unaccounted for, all this stuff. Um, But the deep state and the intelligence agencies are involved in every single nook and cranny and aspect of everybody's lives, including their personal lives, and now we know the CIA spying is just as bad, if not worse, the nsa is fine and there's this naive notion that's out there that some people have i don't think any of you guys have it you've been watching the show for a long time but this notion of like okay okay the cia used to do terrible things during the cold war era but they don't really do those things anymore absolute nonsense absolute nonsense i have no doubt that the cia has been involved in undermining cuba effectively trying to overthrow that country, the embargoes, the blockades. Venezuela, look at all the stuff that's gone on with Venezuela. There's definitely meddling from the outside from U.S. intelligence agencies. You guys know there was a report that came out not too long ago, 73% of the world's dictatorships are funded and armed and supported by the U.S. This was part and parcel of what the CIA did and still does. And now we know they're also doing the thing, which, by the way, is very clearly unconstitutional and illegal, they're turning their spying powers inward and going after Americans as well. So hopefully we get the information about this, the detail about this soon at some point, but who knows when we're going to get it. But now you know the thing that you suspected was happening anyway is definitely happening. My question is just how bad is it? How deep is the rock? How far does it go? because if I had to guess, I would say big tech is involved and it's just as bad, if not worse, than anybody could imagine. Okay. Now let's go to a very serious story. Joe Biden is uh, not doing too well in the polls. He dropped under 40% for the average of polling just recently. The average, so he's 38 39 something like that approval rating for his average, which is oh, that's disastrous. That's disastrous. And he's there because he's not doing much. He's not like early on when he had his highest approval rating ever, what did he do? He cut a check to people. He cut a 1400 check to people. Now that by the way was less than what he said he would do. He said he would do 2000. But still, at the end of the day, people saw the federal government, Joe Biden, cutting a check for $1,400, and they were like, I like this guy. He was over 50% approval rating. Well, what have you done for me lately? The answer is Dickie McGee's So, So um, since he's been floundering, I guess he's trying to find ways, like what can I do to try to up my approval rating? And he came up with this gimmick in regards to the crisis, the starvation, the famine in Afghanistan. See, ever since the Taliban took over – The U.S. responded to that by saying, okay, we're going to freeze all of the funds for the Afghan government. They had about $9 billion worth, and the Fed said, okay, they're not going to be able to access any of this money now. So it's yours, but now it's ours. We stole it because the Taliban government is illegitimate. They overthrew the government. They're not going to have access to these funds. Now, you might look at that and say, well, it makes sense. You don't want the Taliban having those funds. The problem is there's a lot of civilians in Afghanistan, and that money goes towards feeding them and making sure they don't die. And so now uh, we're facing a starvation crisis with millions of people, severe malnutrition, you know, starvation. It's terrible, it's terrible. So what does Biden do? Well, let me go ahead and throw this up and you can see. New York Times, breaking news, President Biden is moving to split $7 billion in frozen Afghan central Bank assets between 9-11 victims' families and humanitarian aid in Afghanistan. The highly unusual set of moves is expected to be announced on Friday. So yes, that was already announced. He's splitting the money between 9/11 families in Afghanistan, and he released this statement that was, you know, all about like, oh, they're looking for justice, and we need to, we need to follow through for them. So 3.5 billion dollars is going to the families of 9/11 victims, and 3.5 billion dollars is going towards Afghanistan. Now, just so you know, that money is not going to avert all the starvation. It's not there's still going to be people who are severely uh, malnourished and are going to die. That's going to happen. A lot of people are dirt poor in Afghanistan. So he thinks this is some brilliant, high-minded political move, which people are going to look at and give him credit for. I haven't seen a single person give him credit. Because this is nothing but a political virtue signal. Guys, Afghanistan had nothing to do with 9-11. Nothing. Osama bin Laden from al-Qaeda was involved in 9-11. Osama bin Laden hid in Afghanistan for some period of time. We don't know exactly how long, because when he was eventually killed, he was in Pakistan. But the Taliban nominally allowed Osama bin Laden to stay in Afghanistan. And so now Afghanistan is being punished by half of their assets being given to 9-11 families. So in other words, in the year 2022 women and children and Afghan civilians are going to have to suffer, starve, and die because Joe Biden wants to do a political virtue signal. This is unbelievable. The only reason why he's not giving all of the money to Afghanistan is because he's terrified of the right saying to him, Joe Biden is giving $7 billion to the Taliban because he's pro-Taliban Joe. He's simply afraid of that political attack, so he won't do the thing that we all know is the right thing that would save so many lives. How pathetic is that? Honestly, this is not much different from that story we just covered on Crystal Kyle and Friends about how Biden caved to the free crack pipe smear. Tucker Carlson and a bunch of right-wingers went out there and made this argument of like, oh, now we're giving away free crackpipes. The federal government is, and these these democratic states are, and would you look at that? They want free crack pipes for everybody. How disgusting is that? What they're not telling you is this is a proven harm reduction strategy where you have safe injection sites and safe drug use sites, and they set it up in New York just recently, and over the course of two months, they saved like 100 or 200 lives already. When you have professionals there people don't overdose when you have clean drug paraphernalia people don't spread around disease that rips through the community now i look at that and originally i was against the the harm reduction approach but then when i saw the data i was like oh the data's clear if i actually care about saving lives preventing overdoses and preventing the spread of disease this is a no-brainer and we know it works there's endless evidence of it they have it in a bunch of other countries but the right decided to caricature it and smear it. Yeah, free crackpipes. So flippant, so derisive, so pathetic. And Joe Biden immediately comes out and says, No, 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 we're not no, there's no crackpipes, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know what you're talking about. Free crackpipes. And so basically they lied and were like, ah, no, there are no free crackpipes in there, so shut up and then eventually they were like, All right, maybe there are, but we're gonna not we're gonna now ban the free crackpipe part of it. So it's just scared of his own shadow, scared to make a political argument. But honestly, with Joe Biden, it is ideological. On that front, he just he's a drug warrior, so he doesn't like it either, even though we know it saves lives, even though we know it's a policy that works. So what does he do? He throws everybody under the bus, sentences people to die, which is exactly what's going to happen. Same thing here with Afghanistan. 9-11 victims' families. The Afghan civilians have nothing to do with that. The Taliban had nothing to do with it. The Taliban is not al-Qaeda. They are different groups. The Taliban is a guerrilla army with domestic priorities. Al-Qaeda is a global jihadist organization. They are different groups. doesn't matter. None of it matters. So sorry, some of you are going to have to starve. You're going to have to have malnutrition and famine and all these problems. And I'm going to sit by idly and watch it for a political virtue signal to give half of the money that belongs to Afghanistan to 9-11 victims' families cowardice, pathetic, cheap, virtue signal, disgusting, man. Disgusting. People will die as a result of it. So let's create more victims so I can pretend like I came up with this clever, brilliant idea, which isn't at all clever or brilliant, and it's actually stupid. Democrats are going to get obliterated, and they deserve it. And by the way, just so you know, hear me now, quote me later, I'm sure there are some right-wingers, some Republican politicians who are going to come out and say, Joe Biden just gave $3.5 billion to the Taliban. Why'd you do that, Joe? So here Joe thinks he came up with a clever way to avert that criticism. They're still going to make criticism. And he's not going to respond the way he should respond. He's not going to respond and say, this is to make it so civilians don't die. He's not going to respond like that. So anyway, there you have it. Our political landscape is a living hell, and this story highlights it incredibly well. Okay, next. There was a story that dropped the other day, which uh, the headlines were hilarious. The headlines were that Trump routinely clogged White House toilets course, you read those headlines, you immediately think, homeboy is dropping, massive dump, son, just blowing it up, just, but yeah, those were just the headlines. The meat of the story was very different. The reason why the toilets were getting clogged was because he was flushing official White House documents. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm sure he was uh, also blowing it up and clogging it with his colossal shit. I'm sure that's it. Why? Trump, he has this standard stump speech he goes back to. I don't know if you guys have seen this one, but he he does this thing about the water pressure. You know, you go in the showers these days, and the water pressure is terrible, and I don't like that. And so he signed some executive order or something that brought back, like, harder water pressure. I don't know. That was one of his go-to things. But he also said a number of times in speeches about how, you know, toilets, you've got to flush them like five, six times now. So I'm sure he uh, both was taking massive dumps. Uh, and how the hell do we get over here with this story? <laughs> I'm now on minute like three of talking about Trump's colossal dumps. But also beyond the colossal dumps, he, uh, he was flushing official White House documents down the toilet. So let me go ahead and show you this article here is in Axios, while President Trump was in office, staff in the White House residents periodically discovered wads of printed paper clogging a toilet and believed the president had flushed pieces of paper, Maggie Haberman scoops in her forthcoming book, Confidence Man. The revelation by Haberman, whose coverage as New York Times White House correspondent was followed obsessively by Trump, adds a vivid new dimension to his lapses in preserving government documents. Axios was provided with an exclusive first look at some of her reporting. Trump has told people that since leaving office, he has remained in contact, in contact with North K- Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, what? Whose love letters, as Trump once called them, were among documents the National Archives r- retrieved from Mar-a-Lago. The news of White House toilet flushing comes as the National Archives uh, has reportedly asked the Biden Justice Department to examine Trump's handling of White House records amid the congressional investigation into the January 6th assault on the Capitol. The Washington Post reports that National Archives officials suspected Trump had possibly violated laws concerning the handling of government documents The National Archives later retrieved 15 boxes from Mar-a-Lago, the Post reported. Archives officials found possible classified material in their return boxes, the New York Times learned, while in office, former president blithely flouted the uh, Presidential Records Act. Okay. Um, There are a number of things to point out here. One of them is staying in contact with Kim (laughs) Jong-un is absurd. Could you imagine staying in contact with that guy? Now, I don't know what their means of communication is. I have no idea. Is it? phone calls? Is it text messages? Does Kim Jong-un even have that capability? Um, is it emails? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how he does it, but apparently, at least according to this reporting, he does it. Now, when I first saw this story, I was like, eh, I don't know. This seems sort of like one of those stretch, uh, stretch points. Um, but then the more I thought about it, I was like, actually, no, that does sound definitely like in Trump's character. At least the flushing of the, of the documents definitely sounds like something I could see Trump doing. But, like, what are you saying to Kim Jong-un now that you're out of office? Like, what are you saying to him? And what are you trying to hide in the correspondence? I know he did the thing where he's like, and we fell in love. Remember that? It was a very famous speech where he's like, and I'm going to be honest with you guys, and we fell in love. wrote me these beautiful letters, beautiful letters. Could you imagine he's engaged in some sort of cyber sex with Kim Jong-un? Oh, man. Oh, man. I mean, look, we know Trump has an affinity for strongmen, for, like, dictators, effectively. Keep it real. We know he does. We know he does. What are you asking him for advice on what to do with your bullshit stolen election claims? Was he telling you what he would do, how he would crack down? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But, look, it's not just that. The argument here is not just that that's the stuff that got flushed, if that even got flushed at all. The argument is a whole bunch of stuff was flushed, and it was, it was a routine thing. So what the, hell was, what the hell is he hiding? What is he hiding? I think that's a fair question. I think that's a legitimate question. And if this was, I mean, be honest, man, any other president, this would be the biggest story in the world for weeks on end. Now, I get it. I'm not saying the media likes Trump. Of course they don't like Trump. They go after him relentlessly. But what happened with Trump is outrage fatigue, where he did so many things that were so absurd so often, and the media also added on top of the genuinely absurd things with, like, fake absurd things that they made a big deal out of. They made a mountain out of a molehill sometimes when they didn't need to. That now there's just outrage fatigue with Trump, where homeboy could do anything, and everybody's like, okay. Some people go, that's fake news. And some people go, okay, he did it, but that's Trump. And so, like, the outrage fatigue has led to genuinely negative consequences because this is a story where everybody should kind of be amazed by it, outraged by it. Uh, they should be questioning what the hell was in those documents, and we're not getting that. Look, I genuinely believe any other president of this would have been the biggest story for weeks on end, whether it's Barack, imagine Barack Obama did this. Imagine Barack Obama did this. What? Uh, e- even George W. Bush, who in many ways, I think, was a worse president than Donald Trump. But even if he did this, it would be like, oh, my God, this is crazy, bro. He flushed documents. <laughs> but with Trump, like, this, this was in the news for half a day, and then it was gone. And everybody's just moving on to some other shit, talking about some stupid, you know, Super Bowl commercial with the Coinbase QR code that people clicked on and or people went to and then the whole site crashed. Hilarious! You spend like over 10 million dollars on a commercial, and then your website crashes like immediately as soon as people go to your QR thingy. But the like, point is, the national dialogue has already moved on. But look, I want to know what the hell was in those papers. What was in those papers? What was in them? And Trump, of course, have come out. Oh, it's fake news. Fake news. Fake news. I don't know, man. You decide what you think makes sense and what doesn't make sense. I'd love to see more information on this. I don't know if we'll ever know what was on those papers and if he actually did it. But I will say, having thought about it quite a bit, I do think this fits Trump's character. I don't know so much about the Kim Jong-un thing and staying in contact. I really don't know about that. But what I do think is the flushing the papers down the toilet. And some of the stuff that has leaked, which apparently hasn't been flushed down the toilet, like internal White House memos on, uh, you know, leading up to January 6th, which basically outlined for Trump, like, Here's how we could maybe do a coup. Declare a national emergency, declare martial law, seize the voting machines. There were all these things. And even that stuff, it's sort of like in and out, you know, in and out of the news. It's like we dodged a bullet by the skin of our teeth, and we're over here just moving on, like immediately. When homeboy's given a rally, and every other day he's like, next time I should actually steal it. He might not have to, given how horrendously unpopular the Democrats are now. But look, this matters. This is a big deal. This is a big story. So anyway, there you have it. This is maybe the most Trump thing of all time. But my initial reaction of, like, a little bit of skepticism and laughing, when you really think about it, it's no laughing matter, man. This is no laughing matter at all. This is, this is some deceitful, arrogant, terrible stuff here, and um, I'd love to know what was on those papers, and everybody should want to know that. All right, guys, let's take a break when we come back. Obama has a message for Democrats, and you're not going to like it. Stay right there, y'all.
1: We are back up in this bitch. All right, y'all.
0: Welcome back to the show. Still got a lot of stuff to dive into. Um. So we'll t- we'll go to Obama, and then after that, Biden's new strategy moving forward. Oh boy, you're not gonna like this at all. And then later on in the show, we have a Democrat that still has balls by the name of Cory Bush. You are going to be impressed with the size of the cojones, if I don't say so myself. All right, so let's talk about Obama. President Obama, former President Obama, every now and then comes out of hiding to remind everybody who he is and to give what he thinks is like sage, guru, advice and wisdom to the Democrats who are currently in office. So Let me go ahead and show you what he said. This is in Business Insider. Former President Barack Obama told Democrats not to complain about legislative setbacks but to focus on their successes in a conference call with party House lawmakers Thursday, the punch bowl newsletter reported. According to the report, Obama held a Zoom meeting with House Democrats Thursday as they gathered for a retreat to discuss revamping their messaging amid a stalled legislative agenda and poor poll ratings. The 44th president implored Democrats to, quote, take the wins you can get and told them that it, quote, doesn't help to whine about the stuff you can't change, Punchbowl reported. Democrats have a tendency to complain about what we didn't get done rather than talking about what we did get done, Obama added on the call. Uh, So I have some more for you. Quote, Obama in the call reportedly discussed legislative setbacks during his own administration, including being forced to withdraw the public option from his 2010 Affordable Care Act when it became clear there weren't enough votes to pass it. If we can get some stuff done, some major domestic initiative, some progress on climate, there will come a point where you decide if you are getting nothing or getting that, Obama said. You know what the story tells me? Obama still hasn't reckoned with his real legacy. Obama still thinks of himself as some sort of crusading lefty who did the best he could and got the most he could. That is definitely not true based on what we know about the numbers the Democrats had and the stuff that was on the table. A lot of people don't know this. You guys do because you listen to this show. But Obamacare is a right-wing health care plan. It's called an individual mandate system. So you basically force people to buy private insurance on the private market. There was Medicaid expansion, which was the best part of it. But then beyond that, it was forcing people to buy private insurance on the private market. That is a plan. That was the right wing's response to single payer government health care. It's a plan that originally came from the Heritage Foundation, which is a right wing think tank. It's a plan that used to be supported by the likes of Chuck Grassley and Newt Gingrich. It's similar to Mitt Romney's plan in Massachusetts. So Obama, with a Democratic supermajority, did a Republican policy and then turns around and berates the left and says, look, it's the best we could have done. No, 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 no. You had a supermajority. You definitely could have gotten a public option. Now you say, well, Kyle, what about the few holdouts that there were? How many times do I have to go back to the same point and point to the same playbook, which we know worked because it worked for LBJ and it worked for FDR. Instead of doing the correct thing, which was a carrot and stick approach, he did the carrot and carrot approach. I'm going to beg you to do it, and if you don't do it, oh gosh, I guess there's nothing I could do. I guess I'll go play with my stapler and then we'll just pass this and say that this is enough. No, you had the opportunity, you had the option to portray the holdouts as public enemy number 1 and to use massive political pressure to cut off party funding to support a primary opponent to their left you probably had enough dirt just like with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema today you probably had enough dirt on them who was it Lieberman probably and, and one other you probably had enough dirt on them to say look if you do the right thing i'll make you a hero Uh, If you don't do the right thing, I see you violated this campaign finance law, and I see you violated that one, and I notice you got some questionable investments over here, and maybe my Department of Justice looks into you, and maybe you go down on some crimes. You had the option. You just didn't do it. You didn't do it. But now in retrospect, what's he saying? Look, so brag about the good stuff you did do. By the way, that's not a part that I disagree with him on. I think any good politician has to do that. Hey, here's the good stuff we did do. We did this. They were against it. This is why we're better. So yes, that part is true. But basically, it's like, well, just accept the failure and happily take the half loaf. No, 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 no. Especially because what is the half loaf that we got? We didn't get a half loaf. We didn't even get a quarter loaf. Ain't no loaves, dog. I don't see anything. So the best thing... Biden did was what? The $1,400 checks, which already was less than what he said he would do. He said he'd do $2,000. We got $1,400. That's the best thing that they did. This, you know, this new infrastructure bill that just passed, guys, we need nearly $5 trillion just to update our infrastructure. We got what, like $1 trillion or $1.5 trillion? And a lot of this bill is corporate pork? You're not going to brag about that. You shouldn't brag about that. You shouldn't brag about that at all. And what else got left on the table? I mean, Build Back Better was the real thing that the left cared about and wanted. So what did we not get? We didn't get universal pre-K. We didn't get elder care. We didn't get lower prescription drug prices. We didn't get a Medicare expansion where you drop the age of Medicare. You didn't get the expanded uh, child tax credit. You didn't get any of the things which all polled really well. None of them. None of them. And his response is not, like, look at what he's saying versus what Bernie's saying. See, this is indicative of who's serious and who's not here. And I have issues with Bernie, too, but just compare him to Obama, and you'll see a world of difference. Bernie's saying, it's not enough. You've got to do more. Now what you should do is propose individual bills on the floor on specific issues and make everybody who's against it vote against it and exert political pressure on them. Maybe we get some of those things passed, but even if we don't get them passed – you're at least putting on the record in a very clear way who was for the good things and who's against it, therefore helping the people who are for the good things and hurting the people who are against it in the upcoming election. So do a vote on $15 minimum wage. Do a vote on lowering prescription drug prices. Bernie and Amy Klobuchar just proposed a bill. Let's cut prescription drug prices in half. Let's do a standalone bill on that. So Bernie's saying we're not anywhere near where we need to be. We need to do more. Here's the plan going forward. Executive orders, too. That's something I talk about all the time. Everybody should be pressuring Biden. Eliminate the student loan debt. You have the ability to do that right now. Legalize marijuana. You have the ability to do that right now. Expand health You have the ability to do that right now through executive order. This is what you do going forward. What does Obama say? Just brag about the good stuff you already did and, and accept your loss. Just move on from your losses. See, to him, it's all a game. To him, politics is all a game. That's it. It's all the strategy and intellectualizing and the how do we find our path through the wilderness here it's not about materially improving the lives of people who need it and that's unacceptable and this is why you guys are hated now notice the other half the time what does obama say make me do it oh you don't like what i'm doing okay make me do it make me do it but then when you try to make him do it he turns around and says Huh, oh, look at these purity testers they never take yes for an answer. They never accept the half wins. So wait, which is it? Should we make you do it? Or when we do make you do it, you turn around and berate us and say, stop doing purity politics. Which is it? Massively contradictory. But here he's telling you what he really thinks. If you, lose, if you lost on virtually all of your priorities, shut up and move on and just focus on the tiny good things you did. What are the things? Again, the $1,400 checks and I'm out. There are some things that... Biden did through executive order, which were good, $15 minimum wage for all uh, federal government employees and federal government contractors that affected about 400,000 workers. That was a good thing. Uh, Right to repair, which was a great thing for farmers. Yeah, there were some good things. Most of them were executive orders, and they didn't go nearly far enough, and then it was only the $1,400 check. What outside of that? Pulling out of Afghanistan? Well, guess what? He undid all of the good that that did by now sentencing millions of people in Afghanistan to starve. So what do you talk brag about what? Brag about what? Brag about what? I guess the only other thing is the the deals that just came through for Ohio and Michigan of a semiconductor factory and an electric battery factory. Those are good things, but like, it's not enough, especially when you correctly were saying our agenda is broad. Our agenda is, includes the $15 minimum wage, includes universal pre-K, includes elder care, includes two years free community college, and he got none of it. He got bupkis. So look, this, is, this shows you who Obama is. He is a professional loser, professional loser. With that supermajority, he could have gotten a lot more done. Instead, he gave us a right-wing health plan. Keep it real. He's no FDR. People wanted him to be an FDR. He's no FDR, he's no LBJ, he's Bill Clinton 2.0, and so is Joe Biden. Okay, next. This next story is going to show you why politics will put me in an early grave. Make makes my blood pressure skyrocket. One of these days I'm going to have an aneurysm or a massive heart attack. So, look, we're playing this cat and mouse game. We've been from the beginning of Biden's time in office of, Like, how do we get Joe Manchin? How do we coax Joe Manchin and lightly prod him in the right direction so he does the right thing? That was never the approach. It was never going to work. You had to make him do the things that you want him to do. Make him. Use political pressure. Use the characteristic approach. Be a mafia boss. That's the only way you're going to get stuff done for the American people. In the name of democracy, make his punk ass fall in line. Well, that's not the case. So now let me go ahead and show you this tweet from Jeff Stein and show you what we're on to now. New, White House aides discussing pivoting Biden economic agenda to center deficit reduction with taxes on the rich and corporations in bid to woo mansion and secure approval of the climate planks. Your skepticism is warranted. Indeed, Jeff Stein. Indeed, it is. So there's a number of things to say about this. First of all, the wisdom of deficit reduction at a time like right now. Anyway, um, it is not wise it is not wise. The economy is uh, effectively built on a house of cards, and if you do deficit reduction, you are definitionally doing austerity politics, and austerity politics will hurt the working class. There's this misnomer that is incredibly pervasive that's still out there in the American psyche, uh, and Republicans have really played this up for decades now. This idea that deficits are just bad, like you don't want to run a deficit ever, And this idea that the federal government needs to run like a like a personal household uh that is not true when you have a personal household uh you don't have your own sovereign currency so yeah you have to balance your budget the federal government does not not only do we have a sovereign currency we have the world reserve currency every developed country has a national debt and oftentimes runs a deficit now sometimes uh you know you can be you cannot run a deficit and you can be sort of neutral on that front but you're never going to eliminate the national debt and oftentimes you want to run a deficit that's just good economics because public debt yields private growth that's the general rule this is what we know from keynesian economics this is what we know from mmt modern monetary theory so to center that is just not it's not a good idea that's just not a good idea but okay so he censors that now the goal of centering that, he says, well, we've got to get Joe Manchin somehow. So this is how we get Joe Manchin. We do that. He says he cares about deficit reduction. We'll do deficit reduction. He doesn't actually care about deficit reduction. This is his dodge anytime people are like, why don't you want to do elder care? Why don't you want to do universal pre-K? Why don't you want to cut prescription drug prices? You know, Why don't you want to do the extended child tax credit? His dodge is to say, oh, I'm so worried about the deficit. How do we know this is BS from Joe Manchin? He just voted for... The bipartisan infrastructure bill, which has a lot of corporate giveaways in it, by the way, he just voted for that, which adds over $200 billion to the deficit. So his concern is not the deficit. If he actually cared about the deficit, he would have said, sorry, I can't do it because the infrastructure bill is going to add to the deficit. That's not his concern. It's his dodge. He is lying that he cares about that. But Biden takes it as a good faith claim. He's like, okay, we'll do that. But then notice, he's like, well, how are we going to do it? Well, this part is good. Raise taxes on the rich and corporations. That's how we're going to do deficit reduction. Joe, Manchin has a principled stance against raising taxes on the wealthy. How do you not get it at this point? Maybe he could stomach a percentage point or two in the top marginal tax rate. But anything he said about, like, oh, no, I am for raising taxes on the rich, he's lying He's trying to protect his ass because ultimately he never ends up voting for any of the tax increases on the rich. How many provisions about rich tax increases were slapped down by the likes of Manchin and Cinema? And what they would do is this game where if one of them said they were for tax increases on a certain wealthy group or corporations, the other one would say, I don't want that one. And they would alternate back and forth between, I don't want that one, then I don't want that one. And would you look at that at the end of the day? We're we're not getting any tax increases on the rich because between the two of them, they're not in favor of any of them together. It, It was a plan. It was a plot. This is a dodge. Why doesn't Joe Manchin want to raise taxes on the rich and corporations? Because those are his donors. Those are the people he's really representing. I mean, we covered it was the more perfect union video that came out not too long ago. They went into detail that he took X amount of money from this group and X amount of money from that group and X amount of money from this Trump Republican donor and X amount of money from that Trump Republican donor. He is representing those interests. He's not representing the people of West Virginia. I know he likes to do this dodger, I'm a West Virginia Democrat. All of the polls coming out of West Virginia show Build Back Better was incredibly popular, and the individual provisions are even more popular, every single one. So when he says, I'm a West Virginia Democrat, that's a lie, because if he was, he would have voted for Build Back Better, no questions asked, no pushback, no access provision and that provision, none of that. So he's just like, what is it, Joe Biden? What is it? Are you, are you just a sucker? And you fall for his head fakes and you fall for his posturing? Is that what it is? Or are you in on the game? I, I, honestly, I think Joe Biden's just a sucker. I think he really thinks, well, if I said her deficit reduction and do that with uh, tax increases on the rich and corporations, maybe I'll get Manchin. No, you won't. For the love of God. It's been a while now since basically Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden were like, here, Joe Manchin, here's a pen. Write down what you want to pass and we'll pass it. And guess what? He hasn't given a proposal. Why? Because he's not in favor of anything. It's going to put me in an early grave, man. It's going to put me in an early grave. This guy's playing patty cakes with Joe Manchin. He's slapping his back and calling him JoJo. And the entire time, Joe Manchin is laughing at him. And Joe Manchin is serving his donors. And we're getting Dickie McGee's acts at the end of the day. Buckus. Nothing. this is it's going to fail this is going to fail obviously it's going to fail and i'm not even sure it's a good thing because you don't really want to do the deficit reduction right now i want to raise tax on the rich and corporations but i don't want to do deficit reduction right now that's not a good idea with the way the economy is joe biden if he wants to save face and not have the biggest blowout in midterm election history for the u.s he would immediately break out that executive order pen immediately eliminate all student loan debt Immediately legalize marijuana by taking it off the scheduled substances list. Immediately uh, invoke the Defense Production Act to increase uh, COVID therapeutic treatment. I mean, I can go on and on here. David Dane of the American Prospect wrote a phenomenal article saying all the things Joe Biden could do just through executive order. He technically has the authority to do Medicare for all, for the entire country, because we have a health emergency in the country right now, pandemic. He could say, I'm going to use my emergency powers to pay everybody's bills for their health care. He's got to do stuff like this if he wants to just not get obliterated in the midterms. And he's not. He's not going to do any of it. Incredibly weak, pathetic president. And at this point, it's not even controversial to say that. Everybody knows it. Okay. Let's move on and talk about AOC. So there's been a big debate going on, not in the country, because the country is solidly on one side of this issue. But in Washington, D.C., there's been this debate going on about banning politicians from stock trading. Like I said, in the country, it's a no-brainer. You guys pass the laws which affect the stock prices. If you're allowed to bet on it, it can in turn affect your bottom line. So clearly, there's a conflict of interest. Clearly, you're going to legislate for your own wallet. That's not okay. But there are so many just uber-corrupt, entitled sellouts in Washington, D.C., that they're offended at the idea that you would take away their ability to trade stocks. Well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to her credit, As previously said, I don't own a single stock because that would affect how I do my job. So I just don't do it because that's the right thing to do. She's right about that. I have many other issues with her. On this front, she's correct. So she pulled an interesting legislative maneuver, though, um, to basically force a vote on this legislation. So take a look. This is from The Intercept. House Democratic leaders were facing a discharge petition on Congress stock trading ban from Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has finally endorsed a ban on stock trading by members of Congress. So, uh, let me show you the article here. They dive into how this happened. House Democratic leaders indicated today that they are moving forward with legislation aimed at banning members of Congress from trading stocks, a sharp reversal from their years of previous support for the practice. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrat of California, has reportedly dropped her opposition to the effort, opening the way for a bill this year. Wide majorities have long considered it ridiculous that members of Congress are able to own and trade stocks, even as they have the power to move the price of those stocks with legislative action or inaction. After multiple trading scandals, Congress required disclosure of ownership and and trades through members frequently, though members frequently flout the rules. Pelosi may simply be bowing to the inevitable, and caving to broad public pressure, but there was a specific internal push that may have made a difference. A discharge petition in the works from Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. A House rule allows 218 members who signed such a petition to force a bill onto the floor for a vote. Last week, Ocasio-Cortez got that process started by filing a bill banning member stock trades with the rules committee uh, filled with requirements that would make the committee very unlikely to pass it. The resolution would have required an immediate floor vote on the bill and barred amendments. So you see what she did here? She said, okay, leadership is not really bringing this up for a vote. Well, we're going to force them to. We're going to do this thing called what they call a discharge petition, which if you get uh, 218 members who sign the petition, then it forces a floor vote on it, and you can't even make amendments to the legislation. And I think what happened is, I think what happened is, if if I understand the article correctly, Ocasio-Cortez's legislation was even more far-reaching and more punitive for if you do the stock trades, And so Pelosi saw, okay, this this discharge petition can get through and we'll have to vote on this exact legislation. If we vote it down, we look terrible. If we pass it, she wouldn't like that because it's very punitive and strict. Uh, So she goes, all right, let's, okay, fine. I'm I'm gonna present a different bill with the same general idea behind it. Now, I think the bill that they are putting up is not as stringent as the AOC bill, but it still brings the issue up for a vote there's all, there's all different versions of it out there now. I know in the Senate, there's like the Hawley version and the Ossoff version. And I think the, the Hawley version is weaker than the Ossoff version. The Ossoff version is like family members and the politicians themselves and their staffers can't do it, something to that effect. Uh, but anyway, so basically Pelosi saw this, was scared the discharge position would go through, wouldn't want a tougher piece of legislation becoming law. So he's like, okay, you don't have to do that here. We're going to have a vote on the bill. So basically AOC forced a vote on this bill. That is wonderful. And that, these are the kinds of legislative tactics and maneuvering that we want to see the left do on all the issues that we care deeply about, all the economic issues, all the, uh, you know, foreign policy issues. It's a little bit different for foreign policy because Biden's a commander in chief and he has a lot more leeway just to act on his own, but you get the point. Whether it's healthcare or wages or whatever, like this is the kind of fight that we love to see. So I've been hard on AOC when I think she messes up, and that's fairly often that I think she messes up. At the very least, strategically, I think she doesn't do a great job. But she's with us on most of the policies, and this is an area where she's not just with us on the policy. She actually did some aggressive you know, parliamentary maneuver here, which helped the cause. So credit where credit is due. Um, and I will also say this. I think this is an overlooked point in, in this story. One of the reasons why Congress uh, is acting is because even mainstream media turned on them, turned on Pelosi, turned on all the stock traders in Congress, even CNBC, Stephanie Rule, like all these people who are usually ghouls and are usually dead wrong on whatever policy discussion is happening, they were like, well, this is absurd because they know that even in like the business community, Certain CEOs in certain industries, like, they have rules that they can't trade in certain things. And they were like, wait, well, hold on now. So these people aren't allowed to do it, but the people who directly impact all of our laws have the ability to do it. That is open corruption. Now, these people are also morons in another sense because they won't call campaign uh, campaign contributions corruption, even though it is corruption. But at least on this front, they were right. It is personal corruption. They could personally get wealthy as they affect the stock price of, like, any company in any industry in the country. So it was mainstream media shining a light on this that scared the politicians into acting. It was. The same thing with, remember when Jen Psaki uh, sort of laughed at the idea of free COVID test for everybody? And then what happened was mainstream media did the right thing, saw that, laughed at it, went after her and said, what are you, stupid? Other countries already do this, and we can't do this? And then that shamed the White House into saying, okay, fine, free COVID test for everybody. And then they did it. And then they did it. So, I mean, you hate, you hate to say it, but it's true. Mainstream media is still incredibly influential because the people in power listen to mainstream media and react accordingly. And so whether it's the free COVID tests or the uh, stock trading ban, this shows you that they're still way more powerful than us over here in independent and new media. Now we'd like to get to the point where what we say goes and we can influence the people in power. But unfortunately right now we only influence, you know, the grassroots, which is a good thing in and of itself. But, but there's multiple steps to get to the people in power for us. It's got to go through the grassroots and the grassroots has to put pressure. And then the people in power have to listen to the grassroots, which, which doesn't often happen. Mainstream media just covers it, and it's like, boom. Oh, this is a real issue, and then they have to act on it. So for the love of God, mainstream media, get your act together and do this on all of the issues that matter. And they won't, because they're corporate inherently, and so they care more about the advertiser dollars, and they have a number of perverse incentives. Um, But rare instances where they do the right thing forces good action. So the media covered this well, which helped lead to this, and AOC forced the vote on this, which was necessary, and then now we're actually getting some movement on it. So we'll see what happens as it moves forward, but look, it's this is a no-brainer. You absolutely have to ban them from owning these stocks. You guys know all the story. We covered all the stories on this show. Whether it was Nancy Pelosi, her husband makes so much money in the stock market, and it's almost always based off insider information. He bought Google stock at the same time that we learned that oh, the antitrust enforcement against Google. It's toothless. It's not going to go anywhere. So Pelosi told her husband that. Husband bought stock and then made a bunch of money off of it. That's just one example of many. You know, um, you had that famous meeting. Kelly Leffler, Purdue, Feinstein. They, before the COVID stock crash, they met in a smoke-filled back room. I don't know if it was actually smoke-filled, but metaphorically, the smoke-filled back room. And they were like, holy shit, the market's going to crash. This COVID thing is real. And then they all cashed out. I mean, this stuff is obviously illegal. Clearly, it should not be legal. And then there was that great business insider piece, which gave all the specifics as to who's in violation of the Stock Act, who's maybe in violation of the Stock Act, and who's okay. So many of these people are just criminals, man. So it's time to ban it, and we might be on the path to do exactly that. Here we go. Next. Corey Bush is uh, really showing some backbone here and some spine here, regardless of what you think of this particular political position that she's taking. But she's been getting a bunch of crap from fellow elected Democrats because she ran on defund on the police. And uh, that's a very unpopular slogan. It only has an 18 percent approval rating in the country. We've talked about this before. But Cory Bush, when people brought this to her attention, she was like, I don't care. I'm going to run on this. Shut up. Whoa. So let me go ahead and show you the article, and then we'll break it down further. This is an Axios. Representative Corey Bush says she's not going to stop using the slogan deep on the police ahead of this fall's midterms, even though some of her colleagues have made that request. Progressives, and that slogan specifically, were blamed for Democratic losses in 2020. The 2022 midterms are even more challenging, yet Bush said during an hour-long conversation with black reporters that she's sticking to her activist roots. I always tell fellow Democrats, If you all had fixed this before I got here, I wouldn't have to say these things, she said. Bush acknowledged her party needs to do a better job of explaining exactly what what it means with its call to shift some law enforcement monies to preemptive social services. If Democrats lose their House majority this November, Bush says she'll blame their inability to pass crucial pieces of legislation upon which members campaigned a year ago. Defund the police is not the problem, she added. We dangled this carrot in front of people's faces and said, we can get it done. And that Democrats deliver when we haven't totally delivered. If Republicans take the majority, it's just done as far as trying to get the legislation across, Bush said. Progressives are always viewed by moderates as a thorn in the side of the larger party. And Democrats are already starting a difficult election. So let me break this down in a number of different ways. Again, on the issue of defund the police specifically, that slogan, I do not support it. It's got an 18% approval rating. Regardless of what's meant by it, I know how it's interpreted. And it's interpreted in a way that's like everybody thinks it's abolish the police. Now, if you talk to activists, there is a split in the activist community. Some people do go as far as saying it is like abolish the police. Okay. Uh, But some people say it's not abolish the police. Defund the police means take anywhere up to like 50% of the police budget and reallocate that money to basically social services. So you could have some emergency response. Uh, institution that's set up where somebody's having a mental, cre- mental health crisis, maybe the person who shows up doesn't have a weapon, and they're an expert in mental health. And so this is the general idea behind it. Now, again, the landscape is very broad, and there are many differing opinions on this. Some people do say, no, defund means defund. Other people do say, no, defund just means cut a certain percentage. Again, anywhere from like 20% to 50%, because police budgets in big cities are generally gigantic. Cut anywhere from 20% to 50%, reallocate that into, uh, you know, things other than the police that can respond to certain emergency situations. Okay, so, in the case of Cori Bush specifically, I do not have a problem with her running on deep on the police. Why? Why? Because it is important. She represents Ferguson, Missouri. Ferguson, Missouri is, of course, famous for their police abuse. And we know, because it happened already, Cori Bush won in Ferguson, Missouri. She was, okay, she's like one of the only, maybe the only national-level Democrats who runs on defund the police. And she won. Now, I would not say, well, you've got to extrapolate that and all the other districts should run on defund the police. No, I just told you, it's got an 18% approval rating. But Cory Bush just happens to be in one of the few districts in the country where if you run on that, it is not a liability. It's provably not a liability. She won. So I would tell her, you do exactly what you did before, and you follow your instincts because your instincts clearly worked. She had won previously, and she lost, but now she ran, and she won, and that was her message. And I have no doubt that she's fighting on this front for things that she thinks are the solution. So I have no problem with her running on it, and I commend her for sticking to her guns and saying, no, I'm going to run on this thing because I believe in this thing, and so if you don't like it, piss off. I respect that. For once you have a Democrat... With backbone. Where I differ is nationally it's a terrible slogan and a terrible strategy, and other Democrats should not copy that. Maybe there's like a handful of other districts where you can use that and win. Fair enough. But I think most I wouldn't do that. And also there is a broader problem on the left, more generally speaking, where, especially among activists, where they like to take, they like to make their position sound as extreme as you can which is not the way you do traditional politics. The way you do politics is to try to make yourself sound appealing to everybody. But if you say defund the police, that sounds incredibly unappealing, and everybody thinks it's abolish, and, again, it only polls at 18% for a reason. But there's a bigger issue here, a much bigger issue here, which is Cori Bush is right that all the time the, the so-called moderates are blaming the left all the time for every problem. No, 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 no. We know... As a matter of fact, objectively speaking, you guys are the problem. You're telling me, build back better, every provision was incredibly popular, whether it's elder care, universal pre-K, free community college for two years, um, lowering prescription drug prices, expanded child tax credit, Medicare expansion. You had all these things that were popular. You guys failed to pass it. The, the so-called moderates were the problem really they're corporatists, mansion, cinema these people were the worst. So you guys tank a popular legislative agenda, and then you turn around and blame the left like it's the left's fault. No, 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 no. It is your fault. It is your fault. So that's the main thing I object to in this conversation, this idea. Moderates always act like they have the answers, and you cannot prove them wrong. They think they have unfalsifiable positions. Like, if you go out there and say, it is better to be more centrist and moderate and pro-corporate, well, that's a testable claim it's a testable claim. So here's one piece of evidence to the contrary. In 2018, every single Democrat in the midterms who ran on Medicare for all won. Even in swing districts, Katie Porter, even in swing districts, the Blue Dog Democrats got their clocks cleaned, got obliterated. So that matters. That evidence matters. And that disproves their theory. The so-called moderates, again, they're corporatists, they make up a majority of the party. The president is a moderate slash corporatist. You guys have your exact governing philosophy and ideology in power right now. You have control right now. If this thing fails and doesn't work, which is exactly what's happening, it's failing and it's not working, that's on you. You got exactly what you wanted. Bernie Sanders is the president. Bernie Sanders isn't president. You know, Sherrod Brown is not the head of the Democrats in the Senate, the majority leader. Cory Bush is not, you know, Speaker of the House. If that was the situation and they were using their governing philosophy and they were failing, well, then you could blame the left. But no, this is on you. It's on you. Own it. Own it. Own it. So, look, this stuff matters, man, because... Th- It doesn't matter what the question is, the answer is blame the left. This is always what moderate Democrats do, moderate Democrats, centrist Democrats do. But really, it's their fault, and it's obviously their fault. Who were the biggest holdouts? It was Manchin. It was cinema. Story after story, they took a million dollars from Pharma. They took a million dollars from this Trump donor. And then what happened? They blocked everything. And then people have the nerve to turn around and blame Cori Bush. By the way, there was never a reckoning with the fact that progressives were proven 100% correct on splitting up the traditional infrastructure bill with Build Back Better. That was their point of leverage. We're not passing this traditional infrastructure bill unless and until you pass Build Back Better. End of conversation. It was the progressives, the furthest left members of the House who said, this is our position and we're sticking by it. And I don't think it was only seven of them who held to that position and they were proven right. And nobody ever in mainstream media or any corporate Democrats turned around and said, you know what, you were proven right, it's just a fact. So when progressives get things right repeatedly, They're proven objectively right. There's never a moment of reckoning. The media never says, well, what are you going to – I mean, look, we might not like these people, but they're right. I mean, it it unfolded exactly as they said it would unfold So look at how the game is rigged. Look at how the game is rigged. The corporatists never admit mistakes. They act like their beliefs are unfalsifiable. They always blame the left, and the left never gets credit when they're proven correct. And so you get this massively skewed conversation. Cori Bush is right. Not if the Democrats lose. When they, get, when they lose. When they get blown out. It is definitely because Build Back Better failed. All those provisions were popular. We couldn't get them through. And that's the fault of Manchin, cinema, Joe Biden, and Democratic leadership who either didn't believe in it enough to fight for it or just don't have the ability to fight and don't know how to fight to get these things through. The left was right every step of the way. Jesus Christ. I have my own problems with them, their own strategic failings, and we've gone into that a million times, and we'll go into them a million more. But in this conversation, it's not an open question as to as who's to blame. So, again, Cory Bush, specifically, I have no problem with her running on defund the police. Me, personally, I think defund the police is a terrible slogan. It falls at 18%. Regardless of what you think you mean, you know, it's uh, – People here abolish the police, even if you're just saying, oh, redirect some of the money to social services. So I think we should try to frame our things in as um, wide appealing a way as possible. But having said that, for Corey in particular, she can run on this. It worked last time. It'll probably work again. She represents Ferguson, Missouri. Maybe there's a handful of other districts where I'd run on that. But broadly speaking, in the entire country, I wouldn't. Uh, substantively, I would argue against the slogan, um, But really it's an ancillary point, it's a side point. Don't miss the forest for the trees here. Because the fact of the matter is, the corporatists are deeply unpopular. They have all the power and all the control right now. They failed repeatedly. They've not only failed when it comes to messaging, they've also failed substantively. They can't get their legislative agenda through. They own all the failures. And they're refusing to take personal responsibility for that, and that is totally unacceptable. So on the broader point, Cori Bush is correct. And the left needs to reassert themselves the corporatists need to sit down and shut up because they were proven wrong every step of the way. And if we ever get lucky enough to get to the point where it is the left that controls the messaging and controls the policy agenda and controls the fight, we would be much better off. And you wouldn't be talking about imagine Joe Biden. Just imagine this for a second. Imagine Joe Biden knew how to fight, knew how to twist arms and actually believed in these things. And imagine not only did we get those $1,400 checks, which went through, which is probably the best thing he did. But we also got $15 minimum wage, and we also got free community college, and we also got free pre-K, and he also abolished student loan debt. Imagine he did all those things. I guarantee you his approval rating would be over 50%, and we'd be talking about Democratic wins in the midterms, not inevitably getting blown out by a bunch of Trump-drunk idiots. Instead, here we are. Here we are having the same conversation over and over how it's always the left's fault. Well, guess what? It's not, not even close. Okay. One of the things that is so unbearable and insufferable when it comes to our political class, the ruling elites, is how detached they are, how they lose all touch with reality and common sentiment when they're in that ivory tower for too long. Well, we have a great example of that right here. So take a look at this. Democratic lawmaker calls bipartisan effort to ban stock trading among lawmakers bullshit. Wow. Wow. So let me show you you some more here. From the article itself so my thoughts on it you know I think this whole concept is bullshit because I think that why would you assume that members of Congress are going to be inherently bad or corrupt (laughs) we already have the Stock Act that requires people to report stock trades so you're allowed to be corrupt you just have to report it why would you assume I mean the people that you're electing to represent you it makes no sense that you're going to automatically assume that they're going to use their position for some nefarious means or to benefit themselves so I'm very strongly opposed any legislation like that so hold on one second I thought I had the name here but I don't so let me do this I want you all to know I know she's from Virginia Um, okay so now I have the article up you need to know her name it's important Elaine Luria Luria Elaine Luria 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 Democrat of Virginia. So th- that, those were her comments. Now, here's the most important point. She's like, why would you assume that were are Nobody's assuming anything. We have the evidence. We have a mountain of evidence on it, whether it's Nancy Pelosi's husband's various stock trades that happen to perfectly coincide with Nancy Pelosi, knowing things behind the scenes about what legislation is going to tank and what legislation is going to get through and how that impacts stock performance. She's made tens of millions of dollars. They've made tens of millions of dollars by being corrupt. They always beat the market. They always beat the market because they have the insider information. There are whole groups of people now who invest based solely on what Nancy Pelosi does because they know she's going to beat the market. Business Insider had a very detailed report that came out. We covered it on this show where they lay out, hey, here are the number of politicians who are violating the Stock Act. Um, here's the number who definitely are violating. Here are the people who are in some sort of weird, uh, middle ground and here are the people who are not doing it. And there's so many of them that are trading based off insider information and they almost always beat the market. So there's, I mean, there's evidence of it. There's evidence of it. Here's another great example. Tom Price, who was Trump's former head of health and human services, he, um, invested in a I think it was a medical device company as he was pushing legislation through that would have increased the stock of the medical device company that he just invested in. Everybody knows the famous story. This is one of the reasons why Purdue and Leffler lost in Georgia to Ossoff and Warnock, because Purdue and Leffler were in on a nefarious meeting behind the scenes right before the stock market crash that was because of COVID. And they were told this thing is serious. You might want to do a little something something in terms of your own wallet. And so they all cashed out and we're not there for the crash. I mean, the, guys, if the Stock Act is just, hey, you need to report how corrupt you are. Okay, transparency is good, but you shouldn't allow the worst thing and just report on what you're doing. No, ban it. Ban it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. And so she acts like, why would you assume we're doing it? We're not assuming anything. We know you're doing it. We have the numbers. I mean, look at how entitled this is. Look at how entitled this is. Now, these guys turn around. I mean, Dan Crenshaw, what did he say? He came out and said, well, you're not going to get anybody to run for office because how are we going to improve ourselves? If if we're not allowed to improve ourselves, how is that going to work? You want to improve yourself? You want to care about just your bottom line and your money? Go pick a different field. This is called public service for a reason. You're supposed to be serving the public. That's what you're there for. Now, by the way, I I would have no issue whatsoever – with increasing the pay of these people in Congress. It depends whether you're a congressman versus a senator, You know how much money you make, some I think 180 or something for some of them, and some are I think over 200 or whatever. I think the president's 400,000. I would have no problem with raising the amount of money they get paid, but I would ban them from doing any sort of investments, from their family, from doing any sort of investments whatsoever. I'd ban the revolving door, which is like as soon as these people leave Washington, D.C., They go cash in with some corporation and become a lobbyist. And the reason why the lobbyists hire them is because when they were a politician, they would do their bidding. So you give them a tax cut or you give them a subsidy or you fight for them, for this company, instead of the people. And then they pay you afterwards and pay you a million dollars or two million dollars a year to sit on your ass all day and call yourself a lobbyist. So I would ban the revolving door. Look, if you do public service, do public service. Do public service. I wouldn't even do just a 10-year ban. i do a lifetime ban. But I have no problem paying public servants more and trying to make them, like, corruption-proof and banning all the different sorts of corruption. And you guys know me. This may be one of my more unpopular opinions. I don't know. A lot of you guys seem to like it. I would would treat corruption, I would punish it like it's one of the worst felonies. I would punish it right up there with, like, rape and murder and grand larceny and and all sorts of stuff, assault. Because over time, this is what degrades a nation. She's like, oh, why would you assume that we're not doing we, We're not assuming. We know. And by the way, if you look at the approval rating of Congress, it varies anywhere from 7% to 25%. You don't understand how despised you are and that this is one of the main reasons why? That it's very obvious. All you're doing is representing your donors, whether it's because of campaign finance stuff or whether it's because you're, you know, personally getting wealthy by investing and then affecting the stock price directly with the laws you pass. It, it, it's just astounding anybody would say this. Guys. For the campaign finance front, there was that Princeton study that said the U.S. is effectively an oligarchy and not a a democracy. This came out like a decade ago. Nothing's changed in the right direction. If anything, we've gone further down the wrong direction. She has the nerve to say this. We're not inherently bad or corrupt. No, we saying you're inherently bad or corrupt. We're just saying you are bad and corrupt based on the evidence. Imagine having a victim complex over this. You are getting away with things that are brazen crimes that to any reasonable person, they say, that's a conflict of interest and not a problem. And you're playing the victim? God, kick her out of office, man. She's got to go. She's got to go. I mean, even Nancy Pelosi under pressure was, uh, you know, forced herself to sound slightly more reasonable. This one's like, it's bullshit. You know, we're victims. You voted for us. So, you know, you're basically you're getting what you deserve. No, because if all of our options are bad because the incentives of the system are bad, well, then we need to change the incentives of the system and totally change the system. Like, that's the thing. It's not – this isn't a judgment on the individuals. It's a judgment on the system. It is. This is like Michael Brooks' famous old quote, which I'm going to butcher now. Rest in peace to the great Michael Brooks. But he said, be kind to people, be hard on systems. Because, yeah, almost anybody in this position would act like this. That's not a problem with them. It's a problem with the system. Change the incentives of the system so you can't act like this. Don't, you know, take people at face value that they're going to act well, even though they're allowed to get away with so much wrongdoing. No, just change the fact that they get away with the wrongdoing. Okay, I think you guys get the gist of it. These uh, entitled, spoiled, pampered little pricks, so out of touch. This is why everybody hates Washington, and it's not even a partisan thing. This isn't left or, or right or anybody who cares about Honesty and integrity in government looks at this and goes, the answers are clear. Okay, next. Sean Hannity went on his radio show and... um, The new thing, this is really new. Fox News has been doing this for a while. Right-wing commentators have been doing this for a while. But what they try to do is posture as like, we are the supporters of the working class. But whenever you get into the specifics of the actual policies that they support, you learn it's all a facade. It's all a veneer. It's kabuki theater. They do not in any way, shape, or form represent the needs of the working class. So uh, here Hannity is going to be talking to his guests about, you know, I know what it's like to go from the bottom up and live in poverty and get out of it. And he's trying to be, like, you know, sympathetic to people who are struggling in today's day and age with wages stagnating and going down because of inflation and all that stuff. But he lets the mask slip at the end and tells you what he really thinks. Take a look.
4: David Bonson is with us, founding and managing partner of the Bonson Group. He wrote the book There's No Free Lunch as we talk about the Biden disastrous economy. Let me ask you the question from the standpoint of somebody that knows what it's like me uh, to struggle to pay rent and and not have much money in the early part of my adult life. It wasn't fun. I didn't really even. I was too stupid to realize that I was broke. Um, but I struggled every month for a good while to pay rent and, and my you know feed myself. Obviously, there's no money for restaurants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Ate a lot of meatloaf. Um, but my question to you is simple. What do people the middle, what is, what, this middle class that, according to the Penn Wharton study, is paying anywhere from $3,500 to $5,000 more per household because of Biden's inflation. What do you recommend for them? They're scared to death. They see the stock market has been as volatile as ever. They're not sure what to do. They can't buy a new car. Uh, they can't, if they sell their used car, they won't have a car. Prices are through the roof there too. So the people are really in a bind right now. What do you advise them as an economic advisor, what do you tell them to do? Well, I, I come from a, a similar background as you, that my economic lot in life now is not what it was early
1: on, and I remember uh, having to struggle for food and gas in the car and all those things, and I will tell you that right now, People that are are suffering in the current environment, the two areas that I think are governmental caused inflation are housing and energy. They they are, unfortunately, victims of very bad policy, they need to vote right, they need to take this seriously in a civic and political sense, and then, of course, the thing that Americans have always done is we have to overcome it. They have to get
4: out there and work, and we have to be entrepreneurial and creative. And there are a lot lot of jobs available for people that take second jobs.
0: So their solutions, after this long conversation, is vote right, which I think you meant vote correctly, but they also mean right wing. Vote right and take a second job. All that to lead people to that conclusion. Just vote for Republicans, shut up, and take a second job, and just work harder. Guys, what if I told you not everything was a bootstrap problem? Not everything was a personal moral failing issue some of the hardest people I've ever known worked multiple jobs and could barely pay the bills if they could pay them at all. I've told the story before. A guy I knew in high school, Kevin, he worked three jobs. He was basically living below the poverty line at working three jobs. Family could get by. Incredibly hard working all the time. Family could get by. We have an entire category in this country called working poor. The minimum wage is not a living wage. You can work full-time and still not make enough money to survive. Now, is that the individual's problem? Or is that just a really terrible system that's set up, which doesn't – ironically, it doesn't reward work. And it's ironic because we're told this is like the whole point of capitalism, meritocracy. It's like, If it was a meritocracy, then people were working full-time. None of them would live in poverty. I I don't remember – do you guys remember the, the story that came out um, – probably two years ago, three years ago, but there's been a number of them, them since then where it's like if you're working full-time at minimum wage, you can afford a one-bedroom apartment in, I think at one point it was one state in the country. Now it might be zero. So and then, you know, you could say, well, what about a studio apartment? And it's like, well, I don't know if you can afford anything anywhere with working a full-time job at minimum wage. Does that seem right does that seem fair, especially in a country where we have incredible wealth and income inequality? I mean, just totally off the charts where billionaires have gotten trillions wealthier as the working class has been struggling. There was the report from the Rand Corporation that came out years ago now. Now it's over $50 trillion, but when the article came out, um, the top 1% has effectively stolen $47 trillion from the bottom 90%. So in other words, if you just take um, the level of income and wealth inequality post-World War II, actually I think it was from like 1970-something in in the report. So if you take that same income and wealth inequality that we had in like 1975, and you kept it the same until today, everybody in the bottom 90% would have an extra $1,144 per month. Every month for their entire life that is how much uh, surplus value is being extracted by the top 1% by corporations and the mega wealthy and that look that's just saying let's go back to the 1975 distribution of wealth and income that's what that is if you just kept that the same and the ratio didn't get more out of whack you guys remember we've covered it what was it Um, the the pay ratio The CEO to the average worker used to be anywhere from like 25 to one, and maybe it was 40 to one at one point, and then now it's like around 350 to one. That's just indicative of what's happened with the system, and of course it's happened over time because the Supreme Court said basically money equals speech, so you have a free speech right to corrupt politicians if you're wealthy or a corporation, and so they bought the politicians, and the politicians have rigged the rules in favor of the wealthy and against the working class. We should have never outsourced all the jobs that we did, destroyed so many great cities like Detroit. We never should have done the outsourcing. Never should have – Reagan with his war on unions absolutely obliterated union membership in this country. It's not a coincidence that when union membership was the highest in this country, that's when the working class was in its strongest position. That's not a coincidence. So tax policy now even. With the Trump tax cuts, there are – though many in the working class are paying a higher effective tax rate than billionaires. Is that fair? Should taxes be higher as a percentage on the working class than on billionaires? I certainly don't think so. So there's so many things you can actually do to fix this problem, so many things. You pass the PRO Act, pro-union piece of legislation, which is phenomenal. You do a $15 minimum wage. You do universal health care. You do universal education. You abolish student loan debt. You do paid vacation time by law there are all these things that you could do which would drastically improve the lives of working class people minimum wage needs to be a living wage and instead of saying hey here's what we should do they say vote right and go take a second job i got news for you this idea it's a myth this idea of like the harder you work the further you go we live in a meritocracy that is definitely not the way it works That's just not the way it works. And not everybody's going to be able to climb that economic ladder. Somebody like Hannity got lucky, whoever he's talking to. Sometimes you just get lucky. And by the way, one of the differences I've experienced, I've realized myself anecdotally, is that when you talk to a leftist, they're much more willing to say that part of the reason they made it, if they do well, is just luck. It's just luck. I'll tell you guys, I, I was largely lucky for this show with my timing, the way the timing worked out and you know, already being an established show by the time the Bernie wave came along? Like, a lot of it is just luck. A lot of it is luck. So, you know, raise taxes on the wealthy and redistribute it and give people a chance. Get closer to an actual meritocracy. But that's not what these guys want. They just want to say, uh, vote right and work harder. Okay, and what happens if they do that and their life not only doesn't get better, it gets worse? Through no fault of their own, what happens then? You don't have any answers. Because you're not in the business of answers. You're in the business of propaganda. You don't want real policy that helps the working class. You would call that socialism and scoff at it. So anyway, know who these guys are, because they're making it very clear. So this uh, next issue here is one that is kind of mind-boggling in the modern day and age. Usually, uh, partisanship is so extreme that, you know, whatever the Democratic president does, Democratic voters will defend it in the polls. And the opposite is true to. Whatever a Republican president does, Republican voters will defend it in the polls. This is a rare issue where it flipped. So take a look at this. This is in Mediaite. Respondents to, a, to an Economist YouGov poll published this week were asked, Do you approve or disapprove of the recent U.S. military raid that resulted in the death of ISIS leader Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurashi? Now, I don't think that question is fair. We'll come back to that. Among all respondents, 60% approved strongly or somewhat, while only 15% disapproved strongly or somewhat, with another 25% responding don't know. But among people who voted for then-President Donald Trump in 2020, a sky-high 74% said they either strongly approve or somewhat approve of the strike that, that killed him. That's a good deal higher than the 65% of Biden voters who said they either strongly approve or somewhat approve of the strike that killed al Qura- Quraishi, Quraishi, Quraishi. Um, There's no way I'm getting that right. But the more predictable partisan splits were evident when respondents were asked, do you approve or disapprove of the way President Biden is handling ISIS? That, when you ask it like that, 69% of Biden voters approve strongly or somewhat, only 15% of Republicans said they approve. Okay, so to that first question, Here's why I think it's just an unfair question. You, he also killed a massive number of civilians, including women and children, in that bombing. And then, by the way, they lied about it and said, uh, no, we didn't. The guy actually blew himself up before we attacked. Uh, if you believe that, i got a bridge to sell you. That's just like the Osama bin Laden propaganda where they said he like pulled a woman in front of him when the Navy SEALs were coming after him. That didn't happen. That was made up. It's just propaganda. The U.S. covering its ass. Because they know if Biden approved, uh, approved the military raid, uh, pro- approved the exercise, and they knew civilians were going to die, well, that's a war crime. You can't do that. So instead what they do is they pull the trigger on it, and then they act like, well, we didn't even know. Or it was that guy actually blew himself up first. So the, the question is phrased wrong because you're not saying – you're killing this guy, and also, I forget the exact number now, 12 civilians. So if you asked it like that, the numbers would change. But look, they asked it like this, and the results were you had more Trump people um, than Biden people say they support it. Now my guess is, um, I don't know, look, I don't wanna be too harsh here. Maybe the Trump people would support it even if civilians got killed, which is monstrous. Because imagine that's your kid or your mom or somebody in your family. Imagine there's a, a serial killer who takes over a school and is holding people hostage, and then the U.S. comes by and drone strikes the room and kills 12 kids along with the serial killer. Nobody would cheer that on. Everybody would be like, "That's you can't do that. You have to protect them. That's the whole point. Protect a civilian. So that's what this is like, analogous to, but I think the reason why the numbers were lower for the Biden people compared to the Trump people is that Some of the biden people knew that the civilians got killed because in all the initial reporting there was some allusion to it right um so i think that's probably why so it's a reversal of what you normally see usually the partisanship always wins out and it's like more biden voters will support it because biden did it and you could see that in the second question like do you approve of how he's handling isis but for this one i think some of the biden people knew which is why it was lower than the trump people more trump people support this killing than the biden people do and uh look at the end of the day Given the facts of the situation, nobody should support what happened. Nobody should. Because, again, if you're okay with it, you're okay with massacring civilians. You just are. You just are. That that was part of the deal because that's how it unfolded. So no person of good conscience, no person who's against war crimes should have said, okay, go for it. Pull the trigger. You have my approval. No, you just can't do it because then you become – the devil that you're nominally trying to avoid you know you, the blood is on your hands that's what's supposed to separate us from them but, well we're good because we have enlightened values and we always try to protect civilians whereas isis don't murder civilians and not care well if you know there were civilians there and you press the button you don't care about those dead civilians since I don't know they're far away and they're brown and they have a different religion and uh, I don't know so I don't care we got the Isis guy though hooray and I don't even buy the idea, oh, he's working on an imminent attack. That would require evidence. It would. And, of course, none has been, has been presented. Anyway, there you have it. Fewer Biden voters support this than Trump voters. Really, none, nobody should support it based on how it unfolded. If you just got the ISIS guy, that's a different story. But they didn't just get the ISIS guy, so there's that. All right, final story of the day. I'll try to make it quick. I'll try to make it a quick one. There was a caller into David Packman's show who uh, asked David a question, David answers here. I wanna to respond to this. So the question is effectively, is America bad leftism a problem? Let's see what David has to say and then we'll respond.
3: Let's go to Alexander the Texan next. Alexander the Texan, you're on the air. Hi, uh, David. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Okay. Uh, I was just wondering, so there seems to be a subset of leftists
4: in America that I would call America bad leftists. Okay. What do you think, what do you think drives their, uh, I would call it a propagandistic uh, coverage of like this Russia-Ukraine situation?
3: I think you really have to ask them. I mean, I think if your starting point is the U.S. is uniquely bad, then that's your hammer, right? And so everything will look like a nail. Russia, Ukraine is an opportunity to say the U.S. is bad. Um, uh, Venezuela is an opportunity to say the U.S. is bad. Cuba is an opportunity. You know, if, if, if you're committed to the hammer, everything looks like a nail, and I think, I think it's that. For some specific people, we've later found out about financial ties to some authoritarian regimes. And so for some people, there may be a financial aspect to it. But I don't think there's anything particularly hidden, you know. I mean, I think it's just a lot, for a lot of people, it's like, hey, look at this terrible thing China's doing. Yeah, but the U.S. also does bad things. Right, yeah, and I criticize those, but we're talking about China right now. I think you get the point, right? And so I think, I think it's, quite, it's quite that simple. That's all it is. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, that, that's
2: really all that I wanted. I'll let you move on to the next one.
0: So let's break this down. There is a small percentage stressing that it's a small percentage of people on the left who – really make a point of not only not criticizing the governments that are like official enemy governments, but also doing apologetics for those governments. So, and that's not like, just because some foreign governments, whether Iran or or Russia or China, just because they posture as being like against imperialism insofar as they're against American imperialism, that doesn't mean that therefore their hands are clean and they're ethical moral actors that's not the case at all in fact any government that's large and powerful is to some extent authoritarian and probably has imperialistic ambitions because i think that it's more about throughout history there's been all these different empires and so it's clearly more of a human nature problem than just a problem that's like unique to americans where our government is the current imperial power so there's a lot of criticism now for our government but that doesn't mean that if we weren't the world's sole superpower that somebody else Wouldn't fill the vacuum and wouldn't also commit atrocities and be bad. And a lot of those governments, even though they're not the world global superpower, uh, they do commit atrocities. So I think there is a small segment of the left that, as a matter of principle, refuses to criticize official enemy U.S. states, but also maybe goes too far in the sense that they do like apologetics and act like if you criticize them, those governments at all, you are therefore serving U.S. State Department propaganda and so you're like a willing dupe of the neocons, or worse, nefariously aligned with the neocons, just if you have any criticism of any of those governments and maybe even their domestic policy. But again, that's a small percentage of the left. It really is a tiny percentage of the left that engages in that, and they're mostly online. So if that's what's meant by like America bad leftism, then it's like, okay, fair enough. It is cringy when people go over the top in defending china and their treatment of ethnic minorities or russia and vladimir putin's domestic policies so on and so forth okay but having said that there's a there's a a mirror flip problem which i think is actually a bigger problem which is exactly what you just saw in that clip which is smugly dismissing america bad leftism and also overstating its influence as if it's like a giant portion of the left because it sounds exactly the same to me as The people who said in the lead-up to Iraq, uh, you're either with America or against it. Or, uh, you know, why are you defending Saddam Hussein? Why are you acting like he didn't commit atrocities? When the fact of the matter is, almost everybody on the left would acknowledge, yeah, Saddam is terrible. Yeah, he was committing atrocities against the Kurds. Yeah, he's an authoritarian dictator. But I still don't want to go to war because he doesn't have weapons of mass destruction. He's not a threat to us in any serious way. And when he was doing, when he was at the height of his atrocities against the Kurds, he was doing it with U.S. backing and our weapons and our support. But unfortunately, it was a very common thing to dismiss critics on the left to just say like, why do you love Saddam? Or why are you against America? You just think America's bad. And that's why you're taking the position you're taking. Like support the troops. It was that kind of smug dismissive approach, which was well, a giant problem that the left ran up against, and it was no fault of the left. It was that people largely bought into the war fervor and the propaganda, and they believed this caricature of the left. And so here's the, real, here's the actual answer. Here's the complex answer. The reality is, right now, America is the world's sole superpower. We are the imperial nation. We support 73% of the world's dictatorships, and we do a tremendous amount of harm. We do illegal wars all the time. The war in Iraq was an illegal war, killed minimum 200,000 innocent civilians, did torture at Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib, violate international law every Tuesday before brunch. I'm just brazen in doing it. The illegal drone war kills 90% innocent civilians. The illegal invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. The list, goes, the shadow war in Africa. The list goes on and on. And on. We actually do globally speaking, do more harm than anybody else right now because we are the world's sole superpower. So that should merit a lot of criticism. And so I guess my response to this, to some extent, is yes, in many ways, America bad. And that's just intellectual honesty to say that. Now that doesn't mean that America is never good. Of course we are. The Civil Rights Movement was wonderful. The Marshall Plan was good. You know? Um, The New Deal was fantastic. The list goes on and on of things that we've done that are good things. Now, intellectual honesty demands that when we do good things, you acknowledge and admit they're good things, and you talk about them in detail, but also when we do bad things, you admit that, and you talk about that in detail. Nuking Hiroshima and Nagasaki in retrospect, massacring civilians on purpose, was an act of terrorism, which my understanding is in modern day, it's, uh, it's known that Japan was... Already defeated, basically. And so it was just a flex against Russia to let them know, hey, in this upcoming era, we're the boss. And you don't mess with us. So, yeah, when you do something like that, America bad. When you do good things, America good. And so I don't like this. This whole conversation is so stupid because why does everybody go back to, like, you must just be coming from a place of America's evil, which is why you think what you think. And then on the flip side, it's like, well you must just support neocon neocons and imperialism um, if you disagree with us. And it's like, no, there's a lot of shades of gray in there, and everybody should try to steel man other people's beliefs. It's like the conversation me and Vosh had. I disagree with a lot of what Vosh said, and he disagreed with a lot of what I said. But you have to engage in good faith and not immediately go to the base level of like, You're just a neocon propagandist State Department asset, and you're just a Kremlin agent. It's like, shut the fuck up. Why is everybody so stupid? Why can we not just have conversations anymore? So on the Russia-Ukraine front, I don't even know what the argument is as to, oh, you just think America bad. Like, why? Because, for example, I bring up the history of NATO and what Russia's claims are in that conversation, that they say, we think it's an act of aggression for for NATO to inch closer and closer to our border. We would feel that same way if Russia or China had a military base in Mexico right on our border or in Canada. We'd be like, this is an act of aggression. So I'm trying – when you give the, the Russian perspective on that, you, you have to do that if you're going to be honest. I'll tell you what the American claims are, uh, so I've got to tell you what the Russian claim is. Is it that bringing up NATO at all means you just think America is bad? For the love of God everybody needs to think about this in a more nuanced way. So, yeah, a a position you should take on the left when America does bad things is America bad. And when America does good things, you can say America good, okay? It just so happens that since we're the world's sole superpower, we do a lot of bad a lot of the time internationally. That's just a fact. And, you know, David brought up Cuba and, um, and Venezuela there. The point on that is, we absolutely have done a lot with sanctions and embargoes and undermining and covert missions to try to overthrow the government. Of course, we are somewhat responsible for the terrible situation those countries are in. But it is also true that there's an authoritarian version of leftism, which is implemented in a lot of these different countries, where, for example, there are controls on the media and there's no freedom of speech. That is also something you should criticize. So those countries have internal problems and domestic problems and economic problems and authoritarian problems on their own, regardless of U.S. interference, but also the U.S. is interfering. Both of those things are true. So America is bad in that we undermine those countries by any means necessary and you know, skirt international law in the process and do all that. But also those countries domestically in many ways are bad because of the authoritarian politics that are involved and uh, the economic approaches, within, which in some ways on some topics have been failures. Both of those things are true. For the love of God, especially when you're dealing with the left, when the left is dealing with the left, hear out your brothers and sisters and try to understand where they're coming from. And if you disagree, that's fine, but be honest in your disagreements. There's no reason to devolve to, you know, you're a neocon imperialist propagandist who's funded by the State Department or you're a Kremlin asset who's funded by Vladimir Putin and, um, you know, therefore all of your opinions just stem from America's bad full stop just stop it everybody just stop it so i want people to act in solidarity more often and to try to understand where people are coming from more often we're always everybody's always going to have disagreements on certain things it's just the nature of politics there is no one unified response for a lot of issues on the left in some ways there are i think the left very broadly speaking is pro union pro higher wages Pro-universal health care, maybe there's are slightly different approaches some people take to get there, but those are things that we can all agree on. Generally, anti-war, those are all things we can agree on. But there's always going to be disagreements, and everybody should try their best to understand the other one and react rationally. I guess the reason that uh, question triggered me is because it's just such a smug way to describe people who might disagree with you on some stuff. Oh, America America, bad leftists. Again, I'll acknowledge that there's a very tiny percentage of leftists who almost make it as a matter of principle. You cannot criticize governments which are nominally opposed to the U.S. Um, I don't agree with that, but I also think uh, it, it's a tiny percentage, but also the Chomsky rule applies too, which is you, at least on paper, have more control over what your government does. So therefore, since you can actually – somewhat have an impact on your government, that is where you should spend the bulk of your time criticizing. And that's Noam Chomsky, one of the you know most cited intellectuals ever. Certainly the most cited intellectual living. It's like, would this guy describe Chomsky as uh, America bad left? Because that's just not clearly, that's a childish way to dismiss somebody who's really thought through these issues well. So... I think I got my point across here. You guys get it. Um, For the love of God, let's have the left not at each other's throats anymore. We can disagree and that's fine, but solidarity is so important. And that is something, I mean, just keep it real. At least on the online left, there's like zero solidarity anymore. There's zero attempt to understand people on the left who might disagree with you. And uh, I really despise that. I'm trying my best from my perspective. I'm not perfect. I fuck it up too sometimes. But I'm trying my best to embody that in my life where I just don't want to – I'm done with the Civil Wars because there's so many more important battles to fight, and we need to get back to that. All right, guys. I love you, baby. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of your day. Peace.